Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here, really excited about today's show. The great artist Brian Hitch joins us for a great conversation. First time he's ever been on Word Balloon was knocked out when he commented on one of my podcasts and said, great job. I'm like, Brian, come on the show. And he said, oh, thanks. Love to. Never thought you'd ask. Never knew how to get a hold of him. My God, Brian Hitch. Are you kidding me? The Ultimates, Justice League. So many great runs in the the 90s and in the 2000s. Currently kicking ass uh, on Hawkman. Unbelievable stuff. And uh, I'm so excited to talk to him and share this conversation with you. I had no idea how much uh, film work and television work from a storyboarding standpoint or a conceptual standpoint that Brian did. But we talk about his work in, believe it or not, the Star Trek universe on the J.J. Abrams first film. Also, uh, the first season of Doctor Who with Chris Eccleson and Russell T. Davies. Really interesting stories. So, And just his thoughts on comics in general. And yeah, we go back, we, we talk about The Authority, we talk about Stormwatch, we talk about working with Mark Miller and Warren Ellis. Uh, it, it's great. How, how does Larry King say it? Brian Hitch, for the full hour. Well, it's more than an hour, it's almost two hours. I'm happy to share it with you on today's Word Balloon. This episode of Word Balloon is sponsored by Aftershock Comics. Shaking things up at your local comic shop right now with hit series like Animosity by Marguerite Bennett and Raphael De La Tour, Baby Teeth with Donny Cates and Gary Brown, and The Lollipop Kids, written by Adam and Aiden Glass and drawn by Diego Yapur. We'll be talking about Lollipop Kids in the middle break, but uh, do yourself a favor. There are great books and unbelievable creators, high concepts, and truly, uh, Aftershock has been cherry-picking some of the best writers and artists in comics to give us fresh concepts and create our own books. Check out what's rumbling there at AftershockComics.com. Word Balloon is also brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you very much, League, for your continued support via Patreon. It helps out. It helps me uh, helps me pay the bills, helps me keep the lights on, literally, and helps me get to the conventions as well. I hope you've enjoyed uh, what I've been doing lately on Word Balloon. I've certainly been putting out more uh, output, and that's because I've been getting great support from the League of Word Balloon listeners and have the time to do more than four episodes a month. So... Hopefully it's mutually beneficial to all of us. Do you like what you hear on Word Balloon? Do you like the conversations? I hope it adds to your comic culture experience. If you do, if you can spare the extra money and subscribe to Word Balloon, is it worth a dollar a month? Is it worth $4 a month, the price of a comic book? If you've got the money and if you're so inclined, go to wordballoon.com, click on the Patreon ad, or go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. Thank you, as always, for your support. League of Word Balloon listeners. All right, without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Brian Hitch. Uh, He's doing wonderful work on Hawkman. Issue 4 came out. Uh, We're learning a lot about uh, Hawkman's past lives, and apparently uh, they weren't just Earthbound. He teases what's coming in the future of Hawkman as well in this conversation, Uh, not just encountering, um, of course, uh, man, a Khafu, Prince Khafu, his original uh, Egyptian incarnation, but Ketar Hall of Thanagar has suddenly come, and... uh, Very interesting stuff, and we'll talk about that. Plus, as I said, the authority, the ultimates, so many more great conversations and discussions with Brian Hitch on today's Word Balloon. Brian Hitch, finally, welcome to Word Balloon. As I was telling you before we started recording, it had been my ambition when I started Word Balloon that eventually I would talk to you and and Mark Miller because I love the ultimates so much. And uh, thankfully now, uh, finally, (laughs) I get the other (laughs) half of the equation. So welcome. Uh, Well, that's great. That's great. I'm happy to be on. I've been wanting to do it for ages. Oh, that's really kind, man. And uh, 
And we were again. We were just talking off the air that you said you're you're celebrating an anniversary of sorts. Well, it was just a realization that I I, I moved into this not the house I'm in right now, but there was a house I, was, I moved into in August of '98. And then I had to finish the last issue of Stormwatch that I was doing off. And then in September, I started drawing the authority. I just realized, you know, it's September 2018. And it's literally the week 20 years ago I started drawing the authority. Wow. So it was uh, it just a, a, I kind of knew it was, it was nearly 20 years anyway, because Warren and I had been talking about this when last year, when we, when we got back together to do, uh, we did a 10 pager for um, the Wildstorm anniversary special. And it also um, went into the new edition of the Absolute Authority hardback slipcase edition that DC put out last year as well. And it was, you know, Warren said it was it was fascinating for him because he hadn't kind of worked with that kind of material and that kind of storytelling pretty much since we'd done it. Um, so for him, it was kind of getting into a different mindset. And for me, I realized that I haven't do- stopped doing it for 20 years and, <laughs> and, and maybe I should have been a little more diverse. <laughs> so... <laughs> Because uh, I, but actually, it, it was quite poignant because um, we were, you know, doing a story again with. So it had Jenny Sparks in it because it was the classic authority sure. from a run, and and I, you know, I love that group. I love that character. It took me no time at all just to kind of get back into the drawing them. They, they came back immediately. Um, uh, though I had to look up what the engineer's costume looked like. I couldn't remember that one. Um, <laughs> Um, and then I realized she was basically naked with a headdress. So it was, <laughs> wasn't complicated. Uh, but I was saying to Warren, it said, you know, when we did this um, back then, it was 19 years ago when we did that, um, that originally it was it was literally considered to be at the forefront of modern superhero comics. And now doing this 10 page story 19 years later, it's suddenly a period piece. And uh, and it was quite <laughs> quite odd to get that realization that um you know maybe you can't always you can't go back you know because you know if you want to stay modern stay current stay at the edge of stuff you have to keep pressing forward on new things you can't go back to old things you've done before because uh, chances are you'll never recapture it anyway whatever made it work for the time because this is all pop culture it's always of the time um and even though i probably don't draw much differently than i did 20 years ago I, you know you know the stuff that that surrounds us when we create the work is different and um and that was a 20th century piece it's the 21st century now it wasn't that point yes absolutely well and you know I, I know watchman suffers from the same comparison at times i mean it's it's always given up as a classic but it is always like well i don't like you'll read people say yeah i finally read watchmen i don't understand what the big deal is and and it's again contextually so different than everything else that was out there and clearly the authority was was like that as well and and yeah and it's a, a book of its time i i gotta ask as you say about jenny sparks and stuff was she was she inspired by anybody uh, personally uh, not personally, but Warren, when when he described it to me, um, you know, uh, and bear in mind this was '98, so it was the peak of this stuff. But he said, um, "Think of her like uh, Kate Moss, but uh, but but a Kate Moss who can act." Um, so um, so I, I kind of he was looking for that kind of small-breasted, um, very small figure, the long hair, the kind of elfin thing. He didn't want the classic large breasts. So actually, the first couple of issues, her breasts, her breasts got smaller as the series went on, um, <laughs> as, which isn't usual for comic books, especially in the nineties. So, very, uh, very true. I talked to Keith uh, Giffen uh, years ago about Power Girl, and when she was first in the Justice Society in all right. in 
the reboot of All Star Comics in the early seventies, and he was saying that out of defiance, uh, he and and now I'm blanking. Shame. Oh, uh, Wood, uh, uh, Wally, Wally Wood. Wood. Yeah, yeah. we're making. We're making Power Girl's breasts larger as the compl- and the and the you know the, because of her costume and because she was so buxom that in defiance they just kept making her bigger. And, no, this uh, is and, you know, the problem. I, I'll when, laugh at that. <laughs> it's, the, it's the problem when the comics are created by by men sitting in rooms on their own for too long. Is Indeed. that's that's the result. <laughs> That's a very good point. Absolutely, man. Well, we I intend, obviously, in this conversation to go backwards and forwards because uh, we will get to your excellent work on Hawkman. I'm really enjoying this series. And Thank I think you. you and Robert are doing a, a tremendous job uh, visually. We're having, course, with the we're having a, a great time on it. Honestly, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun to work, which really surprised me how much fun this was going to be to work on. So um, I'm happy to talk about it because, you know, I'm, I'm evangelical about how great fun this stuff is. Then tell me, because I, I just kind of assumed, based on his costume, that it would be fun for an artist to kind of put their spin on Hawkman design. And not only if people haven't been reading uh, the current costume, but part of the fun of the story is uh, Hawkman is kind of working on, of course, an ancient mystery and encountering uh, past incarnations of himself, not just Prince Khufu in the ancient Egypt, yeah. but as the uh, cliffhanger of the most recent issue said, uh, Katar Hall of Thanagar. Yeah, well, there's also Katar Hall of Krypton as well. We're going to be meeting in detail in a later issue. Wow, so, cool. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, what, what we wanted to do when, when, when Robert – um, you know, his his moment of genius was was that line, just saying he's been reincarnating across time and space, and you know the the idea just then something that we could encompass all this stuff and lots of stuff we hadn't seen before was just an excuse to go out there and have a really big, silly, fun time with all of this stuff. Because one day it could be high concept science fiction. The next day it could be punching dinosaurs, yes. literally, which is in fact what ended up happening. So. You know, you say these things and suddenly they end up actually happening. You think, I actually have to draw him punching a dinosaur. Okay. And I hadn't drawn dinosaurs before, so that was that was Good new. <laughs> yeah, well, this you did is, great, man. <laughs> well, this, this is part of the fun of it. There's a lot of stuff here that isn't what I'm used to doing. You know, I've spent a lot of time destroying major cities. Um, <laughs> and and that, that becomes a bit of a signature. And then suddenly you realize it's, it's actually that signature becoming a crutch because it's no longer impactful. Um, and the... The, the real appeal came early on as Robert and I talked and I realized actually this is actually going to be visually very different because there's going to be a lot of space and you needed to have space for the character to move because those wings are big. Um, and and that changes the way you think about scenes and the way you lay out the visuals. And Warren, uh, Robert gives me a really very loose plot, um, has all the key beats in all the key ideas but he doesn't try to, to set it down too specifically to say this is what you should be drawing and this is how the scene runs. He said, here's the idea and here's the beats I think we should try and hit. Here's a few ideas, but if this, since this is a visual action, just you know do what works. And that level of trust um, is, is, is pays off for me because I, I can dive into this stuff and be as, as big or as silly or as outrageous as I want to be with it. Um, but always with that that the idea in mind that the character needs a lot of space to move, and that's not just being in the sky, but in other environments too. So, I mean, it may not come across that way when other people are reading it, but I think it's it's part of how you give the book a specific flavor visually that's different from, say, Superman or Batman. 
you know, because in, when, it, when you're drawing Batman, you're dealing in, with, with a different sense of environment and, and, and the way you use shadows and so on. Well, this book I'm using, I'm using a lot more light, actually, and a lot less shadow than I would normally use and a lot more background space around the character. So it, it's, a, it's a different flavor. And each issue is very different, too, because as I say, you know, we've got Thanagar, which is high tech science fiction. And we've got the issue before that we've got him fighting dinosaurs. So it, it's just it's a rapid cycle um, bunch of concepts and fun visuals. So it, it doesn't get boring because it's not the same stuff as very few cities anywhere in this, um, let alone destroy cities. So it's amazing, man. And honestly, I, that was a great way to describe your, your storytelling style, because I started thinking about the ultimates and the authority and stuff. And. Um, I'm glad that Robert is giving you that kind of balance, as as every partnership should be in terms of of how the storytelling is is done. But yeah, I really do think it it sounds. I mean, at least based on the work, did did Miller and and Warren also give you that kind of space when you guys were doing Authority and Ultimates? Yeah, differently though. Um, I mean, once Warren and I got into a groove, there were times he wouldn't bother giving me panel descriptions. He'd just give me the dialogue for the scene and say, um, and run that down beat by beat per panel because there was no need to say the character, you know, especially if it's a, it's, if it's a scene of them walking around and talking um, or sitting and talking, there's no need for him to, to say on who and, and, and what angle to take. And, um, and even when when writers put that stuff in, say high angle, wide angle, you know, it doesn't necessarily always feel that that's the way to do it when you sit down and work out a storytelling. And I'm entirely driven in my work by storytelling, not by this is something I'd really like to draw. You know, um, I'm happy drawing anything. Um, never used to be, but now I am. Um, Interesting. But but it, it's it's it, what I draw is decided by the storytelling requirements, not by the fact that it's something that would be fun to draw or or um exciting to draw or interesting to draw it's purely driven by the visuals are purely driven by the needs of the story so um mark and i once we got into and mark, bear in mind that mark when i started doing ultimates with mark um there wasn't any sort of sense of visual flavor what basically marvel wanted was um us to do what we'd done on on each on our authority runs mm-hmm. uh, and and bring that to Marvel. Interesting, because what you know what Bill Gemma said was if we'd done the authority for Marvel, Warren and I or Mark and Vin, Frank quietly, um, if we'd done that at Marvel, it would have been a two hundred thousand bestseller because it's exactly you know they they were looking that at that what we were both doing on the book separately as being, you know, kind of the leading edge of a modern voice in comics at the time. You know, young guys in our early thirties. Um, and that's what they were looking for, but they wanted us to bring that essentially to the Avengers. Um, and, and actually when we first started talking about the ultimates, we were talking about, um, and I'm sure I must've said this too many times in interviews. It's probably boring for a lot of people, but, um, when Mark and I first spoke, Mark called me and we ended up spending almost the entire day on the phone. And we talked about lots of lots of the character stuff and, um, you know, the idea of turning Captain America from a superhero into a super soldier for real, which hadn't been done at that point. Yes. You know, um, and, this, you know, this was years before the Marvel movies, you know, took all those approaches. So it was it was for the time kind of new thinking or seemed to be anyway, um, or different thinking anyway. And um 
but we were still talking about doing things like, um, you know, big Asgardian stories and time travel stories and things like that. And that was, you know, like with authority, just those big high concept stories, but with these characters. Um, and, and, you know, then, you know, September the 11th happened and it just completely changed the way the world worked and the way you saw the world. And, um, and suddenly it didn't seem like doing those, those, high concept escapist stories felt right because this is what i said earlier about what you do it's not created in a vacuum you even though it's pop culture and it's always of its time because it's created in a in a, in a time that's affected and you're affected by things that go on around you whether that's family life or or public life or news or events or things in the world you know um you know superheroes grew out of world war two as well and yes. prohibition and all of that stuff and it was affected you know superman as an immigrant character is affected by the fact that he was created by immigrant people sure. uh, or with that background and and uh, it with with ultimates it just suddenly you know I don't remember whether it's Mark that coined the phrase himself or whether it was something he'd heard on news or read in an article, but the phrase he used was super terrorism, not super villainy. Yes. And it changed the changed the, the playing field completely. And suddenly we realized we weren't doing a superhero book. We were telling a war story. Um, and that changed the flavor completely. It, it changed how we played it. It changed the nature of the reality with it because – you know, we, you know, with authority, I was, I was, in fact, I was drawing at the time, at the time of September the 11th, I was drawing a short authority story I'd written, and it was going to go into a special, just, it was a 10 page, um, which I think, if I remember right, it was called The Man with the Quantum Brain, but uh, I'm not entirely sure about that, I could okay. be yeah, misremembering it, but anyway, I'd, it opened with basically half of New York being destroyed. Um, wow. And, yeah, there's a big, big three-page opening, and um, and I was just drawing that the big double-page spread of the lower half of Manhattan being destroyed in, in exquisite detail on September the 11th. Wow! And you know, my my inker at, at the time, Andrew Curry, was staying with me, and um, and I had a friend visiting, and he was downstairs. We were up in the office working, and he was downstairs, and he just called us and came downstairs and saw what was happening. And and we just sat there and watched this unfold. And I just put all the work away because I just knew there's no way we would finish that story because it was no longer appropriate in the world that we now lived in. And that sort of escapism and that kind of destruction, we'd just seen it for real. And it, it isn't funny and it isn't exciting. And, you know, the superheroes react to that level. Uh, that Those kind of events in the world in their pop culture, they always have. They have done throughout their history. Um, uh at least, you know, uh, that's how I viewed it. So, you know, that that had a profound effect on how Mark and I chose to 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 work the concept of Ultimates or of Ultimate Avengers as it was originally going to be. Um, and it was actually it was it was, I think, a much more interesting approach. Anyway, um, I know it was it was led by those those terrible events, but it it also just it, it forced us into new directions with the characters. I think. That we wouldn't otherwise have gone um but it is very much of its time um you know i mean i look at it now and i just see all the mistakes and all the things i'd do differently i said to mark <laughs> said, God, you know because mark would mark would send me a script for 20 uh, for 22 pages and i'd turn into 28 page issue wow uh, and and bill <laughs> bill used to drive uh, like bill 
potty, but then it started selling really well. So it's like, okay, do what you like. You know, <laughs> do you want extra pages for the hardcovers? You can have another thirty pages for the hardcovers. You know, wow. Uh, so you put new scenes in, which we were going to do, but then I was so bloody late on that book all the time that just I didn't want to take on any additional stuff and I don't think they really wanted me to do it anyway uh, when Dan Buckley um, got into you know he was he came in there starting to um, you know uh, try to try to corral <laughs> ultimates into something of a schedule um, and you know he gave up after you know it's it was promises it was cajoling it was threats in the end as he said i'm going to fold like a piece of cheap garden furniture when you do it we'll put it out whatever and it, it was it, it was a it was a long five years doing that book um yeah, but it was always uh, worth the wait man i, I no, you I quit, know honestly I again i mean we don't you know we're all of us wednesdays wednesday warriors we're like oh man when's the next issue but it was like oh great and it would it would come out and you guys would pay off every time man well, thanks. I mean, I used to quit nearly every Friday. Um, I, it was it was very frustrating. Um, I, I'm not entirely well. I, I, there's a lot going on with me at the time that I think affected the. But I, I had more trouble actually being able to work than I did working. When I actually could sit down and focus, I was productive. But that was very seldom. Um, uh, on that, you know, on ultimate on the authority, I was drawing seven pages a week. Wow, um, I know, I know, and and our ultimate. So I was doing like seven pages a month. Um, it it was it was a very often frustrating experience um, uh, for for no reason that I can actually uh, I can actually fully define. I suppose. Um, I mean, Mark um, created this myth that um, work that good should take a long time, which is the whole growing roses kind of thing. Um, I suppose, and it kind of stuck. Um, but it really wasn't true because when I was drawing, I was drawing fast. It just, unfortunately, I wasn't drawing often. Um, and that was the problem. I get into these cycles, which were very, um, uh, frustrating and depressing and, and, you know, you know, you know, creativity and, um, and that stuff seems to go hand in hand sometimes. Understood. Um, Absolutely. But it, man. Yeah. But. It, it was it was a, it certainly was an interesting time, certainly growth time. But I just look at it now. I said to Mark, if we did that now, it would be a lot shorter. Because <laughs> uh, uh, you know the, we'd we'd keep. I, I don't think there was a single twenty-two page issue of Ultimates. I don't think anybody ever really realised they were getting twenty-eight, sometimes even thirty-two page issues when they came out. And um, we got to the like the end of volume one, and um, and Dan said. Um, yeah, Mark sent the script, and I and I sort of started reading the script, and it was a, it was about a twenty four page script, and I said, "You realise this is going to be a thirty eight page story when I finished with it." <laughs> and um, so Dan said, "How about uh, we give you forty eight pages, um, uh, and we split it into twelve and thirteen issues, twelve and thirteen, two twenty four page issues." I said, "That's great." So I turned in a thirty eight page issue nine and a forty eight sort of thirty eight page issue twelve and a forty eight page issue. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I could just see Dan. There was a phrase they used to describe Dan going Red Hulk um, <laughs> at the time, and I'm sure I must have sent Dan absolutely mental all the time with that stuff. But then, you know, they were just as bad sometimes because uh, when we got to the the second volume, and I said, um, you know, there's this big sequence at the end, and I wanted to do a, a splash page, single splash, double page spread, and then I wanted to do a three page gatefold, just so he constantly bit got bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and Joe got back to me and said, "No, don't do three. Do do eight. Wow! And I was like, 
Oh, an eight page read. He said, yeah, because Jim Lee's just done a six page, a six page bat cave shot. Um, <laughs> Competition. <laughs> I know. But the thing is, I was actually dreading it by the time I got to it. But it was one. It was actually the easiest thing I ever did on the Ultimate, that eight page spread. I'd penciled it in three days. Um, and that was eight pages. Wow, and I couldn't yeah. even do that in a month before that. It was just something about it just kind of plopped into place. I still love that. I forget I drew, I drew that actually. So I go back and look at the the ultimates occasionally, and and it's it's um it's it's mad. You'd never get to do that today. Do you did when the movie came out, and it, you, it's funny we were talking off the air, and and you said that your kids like going to the conventions now because they're into the TV shows and the movies and stuff. Did did you pull out the ultimates and go, hey, uh, just so you know, <laughs> if you're wondering where they got some of these ideas, right here, man. <laughs> no, I, but I, the, the, it comes up occasionally on Twitter, actually, where some guy will pop onto my Twitter feed and ask me why I base the ultimate so much on the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> yeah, look at the dates, dude. You know, <laughs> absolutely, man. No, I mean, there's I, like a seven-year difference. You know? Yeah, well, and I, and forgive me because I always ask this question, and I almost am embarrassed to ask. But you know, as a fan, we want you guys like rewarded for your work. I hope you. I hope you got something for the movies. <laughs> Not really. Uh, oh. you, got, uh, you know, it, it's 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 not something we ever really think about. It's, that's the, that's the thing. It's work for hire. Um, and, and and you kind of. I don't think you can complain about it after the fact. If you want to change the work for hire deal, I'll be first in line to get that changed. But that just isn't the way it works, unfortunately. That's I mean, it used to be. Man. Well, yeah, you see, what there's that thing where it says, you know, all rights to all materials is owned universally and in perpetuity, and that was fine because, on the whole, you know, for the for the enormous bulk of the comic book um, industry's lifetime, um, it's always just been about print because nothing ever got made into a movie, really, yeah, um, or a TV show, um, and certainly, and certainly, the comics were never mined for the material directly. Um, so, you know, and that, that was fine because you got reprint rights, you got reprint royalties, you got, um, payments and, and that just sort of tickled through. So, but it, you know, when it comes to a, a movie industry that's, that's making, you know, tens of billions of dollars on the back of work initially created by a lot of very talented writers and artists, you know, um, you know, maybe that work for hire agreement should be, should be kind of revised a little bit. Um, yep. but, but, you know, um, you know, as Mark's always said, revenge is, um, is, is living well. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, so, and he's certainly done that. Well, that's um, true. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> well, and you've, you've had your forays into creator owned comics as well. You and John yeah, Ross did your America's, yeah. uh, got talent kind of comic book. And then forgive me, what was your solo uh, image book? Real heroes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Though I still have to do the final issue of that. Okay. Um, it's uh, it got somewhat delayed by several years at DC Comics. Understood. Um, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, there's actually two issues to be published. One's already done, but I, they're not going to put it out till the final issue's done, so they can put the two issues out and then get the trade out. How many so issues I'm, altogether then? For, for it, uh, it's it's a six issue series. There's okay. four published. Five is complete, but not yet published. Understood. Uh, and issue six is is like two thirds penciled, but not yet inked, coloured, lettered, or anything. So. I need to go back and just wrap that up so I can we can get that one off and and um, and that one guy who keeps coming onto my Twitter feed asking me where the hell the final two issues of Real Heroes are, um, he will finally get an answer to his question. Um, 
and I think I think he might be quite pleased. Whether he chooses to buy them or not, I don't know. <laughs> I hope that you know what I always hope with you guys is you know you do your creator own stuff at your discretion and 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 you know want, but also you know it seems like you still have a lot to say with. Certainly in the DC universe, my God, I mean, you know, Justice League and now Hawkman, I, I, you know, and it seems as based on our conversation right now that you're having fun still doing the licensed books. Well, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think it's an either or thing. I wish I was faster that I had time to do. Well, actually, I am a lot faster now than I ever have been. And there is time to do more projects. Um, but. Uh, you know, most plates fairly full because I'm not just drawing Hawkman. Hawkman is what you're seeing published. But there's another book I'm already drawing that's um, not going to be out until next year because um, the writer I'm working with um, it has a fairly full plate, so he can't he can't write monthly on okay. this project. Um, and I'm not going to say who it is because that's part of the excitement. It's it's pretty pretty cool. <laughs> I understand, um, man. No, no, no. We never uh, we never get ahead of no, marketing uh, decisions. That's all right. Exactly, but you know. Um, it, it was funny when we when we went to Dan with the project. It I, I've never had a project green lit in twenty minutes before. It was it was, <laughs> and and with no editorial input or interference, it's just like yeah, do it. Off you go, the pair of you. When That's you're done, great. With it. So it's it was it was it was really good, and it's it's so unexpected for this writer to be doing this character, and it's a character I wanted to work on for a very very long time. So. Um, and a world I've wanted to play in for a very long time. So I've, I'm having a hoot. And Kevin Nolan's inking the book for me. Wow, great. So as, as creative teams go, I couldn't be happier. This is, this is lovely. And it's, 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 again, effortless to draw because it's just – it works. This guy knows how to write, and, and he, he writes so well for artists. Um, it's very, very easy to work on his material. And, um, uh, and having knowing Kevin's inking, it just takes any – any kind of worry about line work or finish. You just want to turn it over to Kevin and let him do what he wants to do with it. But then, you know, he inked the first issue and said, that was the most fun I've ever had tracing lines. Um, <laughs> Cause uh, you know, I said, well, I wanted more of you. I was hoping you'd kind of, you know, tart it up a bit, you know, but he just wanted to do what I'd pencil. So, you know, when people meet in the middle as the issues go, maybe I should give him looser pencils. I keep threatening that. And he says, no, 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 just, just you pencil it. You know, <laughs> So, I was going to uh, ask: Are, are you a t you are a tight penciler then? Well, reasonably, I'm not. Uh, you know, we, we've talked about printing from pencils from time to time, but I'm not that neat, okay. especially because okay. I, I I work a lot directly onto the paper with a lot of without doing preliminary stuff. Um, not every page, because sometimes you have to work things out a little bit more carefully with the figures. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah i it I, the you can't really mistake what my intentions are with hawkman sometimes it gets uh, um because the schedule is is frankly insane we have no lead time on the book at all wow so um so when i started issue one was literally um done in four weeks went to print the next week and issue two and so on and i've got i've just been away for two weeks holiday so i've come back to to an issue which um i have two weeks to draw so oh, um yeah, well, I, you know, I did issue one of the issues in that week at that time. And in fact, none of it's taking very long because it, the character itself lends itself, as I say, to this kind of space. And because I'm not ruling up hundreds of buildings and cities and, sure. and, and stuff, it, it's actually I'm finding it goes very, very quickly. Um, and I'm, that's part of the fun of it, I guess, the energy in the project. But, you know, it's it's like the the entire polar opposite of what the Ultimates was, which was, um, you know, entirely labor intensive. 
Um, and, and this just isn't. It's it's. Um, I've completely lost my train of thought. Was I actually starting this sentence? Well, no. Talking? I was asking about how tight your pencils are. And oh and, yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, your answer. This is a good answer. Absolutely, man. <laughs> you know, it's they're 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 um, energetic. There's a there's a little. The, the closest I can come to it, I suppose, is it's it's more. Uh, it's a little nearer to Neil Adams' kind of penciling, where you know, there's the side of the pencil, the point of the pencil some technical pencil stuff it's it's um I, I don't worry necessarily about making marks that have to be inked exactly as i've penciled them that's not what i'm looking for that i'm not looking for a trace job with the inking i'm um, uh, i'm looking for understanding i mean working with an inker is is always a compromise for both of you because you both have different styles yet the inking lines are what are printed not the pencil lines so it, it's always when you're penciling, you're always thinking, how will this line be inked? But at the same time, you don't want to kind of lock up by second guessing yourself and starting to erase lines, thinking, no, that won't be inked right. That won't make any sense. So you want to be able to have a very easy relationship with your inker, um, you know, uh, and, and trusting relationship. And I worked with Paul Neary for the best part of 25 years. Um, and that was a really profitable relationship, you know, artistically anyway, um, for both of us. Um you know, and he's moved off to other stuff, and um, you know, Andrew's in my work on and off since the Ultimates because he inked the first eight issues of Ultimates, I think. Um, so Andrew and Clark Andrew, or, or or Paul? When you're saying sorry, Andrew Curry. Um, oh, inked, Andrew Curry. Pardon me. Yeah, he, he inked the first um, the first half dozen seven issues of Ultimates before Paul came on. Okay. Uh, yes. Yes. And obviously, like you started to say, that or you're both. They're, they both helped you, at least for the first three issues. I see Paul's credit on issue three, yeah, and then Paul, you and Andrew yeah. for, for all three other issues. So Yeah, well, yeah, just the schedule. So, you know, um, sure. Paul, the, neither of them particularly fasting, cause, um, and Paul stepped in to help out because there's three pages we just couldn't um, fit into the schedule, and Paul's okay. local. And, and Paul and Andrew are both local here, so oh, great. Uh, it's very easy to drop stuff off. But, um, you know, it's ended up being that, uh, it turns out I can ink really, really fast um, on my own stuff if I just sit down and focus on it. And so, you know, I ended up inking 12 pages of issue one in something like three days um, to get that book out. And the same wow. again on issue two. Um, I couldn't do it on three and four. Um, I did, though, I did ink about seven or eight pages actually on issue four, on issue three, but I couldn't do anything on issue four because we had the holiday. Um, so it's it's all a bit mad the schedule, but I'm you know I'm not stressed out by it because we're on top of it as tight as the schedule is. We get the book done, it goes out, and there are still going to be pages I wished I could have had another day on or um, or whatnot. But you know, honestly, if I feel that badly about it, I'll I'll do some a little bit of tarting up on them for the trade <laughs> for the hardcovers. And if if I actually don't, <laughs> if I'm not actually not that bothered, I've moved on um, to other stuff by then. You know, they'll go out as you saw them, but. Um, you know the pencils are tight. That all the information's there. It's just that they're not so anally tight that you could print from them because there's a bit of, sometimes you're trying to figure things out. And I like to work as where possible directly on the paper without without doing too much in the way of preliminaries. Uh, so it's also faster because it just removes the stage of process. Um, okay. So it may, you can you know it's helping you know because the choices I I figured this out. It's only taken me, believe me, 30 years to figure this out. <laughs> but the, um, I make the choices about what goes on the page and where it all goes on the page, how the storytelling works, how the panels are going to be um, constructed and all the compositions. All of that happens 
honestly, virtually instantaneously upon, you know, looking at a blank sheet of paper. And that doesn't, those decisions don't change whether I spend two hours drawing the page or two days drawing the page, it will still read and look pretty much exactly the same. Um, so I began to realize that I was probably spending an awful lot of time, frankly, doing nothing or adding nothing to the page that anybody would see. And there were times when um, when I was writing Justice League, I ended up drawing some of the issues. I was never supposed to draw any of them. But it was always on, on a ridiculously tight schedule um, because some somebody had kind of dropped out. There was a two-part story um, that I'd written for Garcia Lopez. He was going to draw it, which was going to be fantastic. Um, and uh, and what happened is that, you know, because they're on that mad twice-monthly schedule, suddenly DC look at it and goes, hang on, there's two issues sitting there written. Why, why can't we publish those? Because that will buy us stretch us out the two months i said because they're garcia lopez isn't it it's going to take him eight months to draw them with his sure. other stuff and um they said well we want to publish them now well who can we get and i was like crap well if it can't be garcia lopez the only other person i'm going to trust with this is me so so i said okay i'll draw them then and i ended up having um um i think i drew one in two weeks and the other in six days and um and nobody noticed and i thought i'm i've been doing this wrong for 30 years <laughs> So, um, so I, it just gave me a lot more confidence to work more, um, more directly and more focused and, 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 and trust myself a lot more. And I got, I got given this advice many times by other professionals over many, many years, but, and I've passed this on to others, you know, younger guys, which is, you know, learn to get out of your own way. You, you, you just, you will, you will honestly try to put every obstacle possible in front of you to not finish that page uh, or not get the job done or not meet the deadline. It will be anything from what psychologists call seemingly consequential behavior, which is like, Oh, you know what? I've, I've forgotten to take the washing out of the, the washing machine. I'll go and do that. Oh, I might as well walk the dog while the sun's out, you know? Um, and then you get home and, and you've done all this stuff. It's four in the afternoon. You wonder where the fuck the day's gone, yes. you know? <laughs> and, and actually, this 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 might have been an open secret, but if you actually just sit down and don't go on Twitter and don't go on emails and just sit down, put some headphones on, sit and focus, and just draw the damn page, it actually doesn't take very long. Agreed. I, so you're, you're, thank you. Welcome to my life. Absolutely, man. And I uh, I think a lot of people. And truly, as we get older, it's not wisdom; it's perspective. And yeah, I think so. Maybe sometimes we do have to fuck up for thirty years, and they go, yeah. well, "Maybe I should turn left instead." That might actually make more sense after turning right all these times for thirty years. So, oh, yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, there's been times where I've had I've had productive periods. I mean, Authority was was um, you know it was twelve issues on time by the same creative team from Wildstorm, which was a bit of a miracle in itself at the time. Um, so you know, but but then you know, I, I came out of that book confident, and then. I was went on to JLA with um, with with Mark Wade, which was going, well, I was really looking forward to. And we then DC wanted us to do this big, um, you know, tabloid size special first um, before I before, before yeah, I, which was kind of an, an interesting challenge because the idea of doing something truly visually big was was really was really a fun thing. Sure. Um, uh, Though actually it took longer than everyone thought because um, because we were drawing the pages bigger, we were actually adding 25%. This is what I said about getting in your own way. But it took the pages 25% longer to draw and to ink. So, and you weren't getting paid 25% more for doing them. So, Understood, yeah. Um, you know, there's one of those obstacles again. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> obstacles to success. I have a long list. Um, so, yeah, but we did that. And, and um, once we realized it was going to run over the schedule for when I would start JLA, DC, well, Dan, the, the editor at the, the time was supposed to um, uh, alter the, the, the schedule to when I would start J- JLA so that, you know, we would be still be on that three to five month lead time. Um, and, and he didn't. And by the time I got off um, Heaven's Ladder finished, we were four months behind on the regular book. And um, suddenly I was I started the story. But then I was being told, actually, the books books on the hot list now. We're going to have to get somebody else to draw the next issue or half of the third issue. And it was just it was horrible. Yeah, it just absolutely horrible. And it just completely, you know, broke me because that wasn't what the experience was supposed to be. And and the book was late and it wasn't my fault, you know, and of course it looks like I was late and it was my fault. But, you know, so I went from from the authority where I delivered everything bang on time, in fact, ahead of schedule um, to, to JLA. And it was just it was just a nightmare. Um, it was just really, really unpleasant. Um, and so, you know, that's when, um, you know, the call came, um, you know, I quit JLA sharpened a few pencils um, and uh, the phone rang and, and, and Joe Casada said, you know, the lunatics are running the asylum. Do you want to join the party? <laughs> and I mean, that's literally what he said to me. I believe it. <laughs> um, so I was like, yep, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, so because Mark had been wanting to, after uh, this is where I'm coming, I always get back to the point eventually. So ultimates, <laughs> yeah, when, when Mark called me that first day, um, you know, he. We were talking about how it was working with different writers like Mark and Warren, and you know how they approach their material. So when Mark was writing the Ultimates, he kind of he, he was responding because he and Grant had been um, looking at how Warren and I had been doing the Authority and mm-hmm. and and responding to that as well. So when when Mark came to write the Ultimates, he was essentially writing for the stuff that he'd seen in the Authority. So he understood how I'd done what I'd done and was able to give me a lot of space to that. But the difference between him and Warren, when, when Warren um, wrote a very complicated scene that was, seemed to be artistically demanding, needing a lot of rubble buildings blowing up, that kind of stuff, um, he would then write, write a couple of scenes that were very um, um, uh, low cost in terms of time spent drawing them. Mm-hmm. Mark, Mark had the opposite approach, which was to essentially tell you that every single page had to be the best page in the history of comics. <laughs> Um, and I, I've, I've talked to, you know, I've emailed uh, <laughs> like, like when Greg Capullo was doing um, doing the series with Mark last year. I emailed Greg and said, you know, I Mark sent me the, uh, you know, copies of the first issue. It's great. I said, how many times in the script did he ask for this to be the best page in the history of comics? He's like, oh my god, he does every like every fourth page. So, and but he does, he still does it. Um, so Mark, Mark is um, Mark can be a little more costly in terms of what he asks for, but he, he doesn't ask for it like draw everything. You know, he just the way he describes it, you can't help but think of that. You know, he's sure. he's very very good at pacing. He understands moments and structure really really well. So again, that stuff because it's all there is very very easy to deal with um, because you don't actually you can you can see it. It just fits together like clockwork, and you when you read that, it's so easy to visualize how to how to draw it that's excellent man no i i i love mark's storytelling both on the page and also in person and literally i think in the last nine years i've seen him four times in person and he happened to come to chicago for c2e2 this year and we got to have dinner with a large group and uh, share stories and stuff and yeah no he 
he kills me. And, I, and and like we said earlier, man, no, I'm very happy for his success with the Netflix deal, and uh, I'm glad that he's uh, taking all the uh, creators along. Did he offer you any sort of Miller World opportunity? No, no, it never came up. He never asked for anything. So, okay. Um, I, su- I just assumed he hated my work. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's the case. Okay, let's take a break here. We'll get back to our conversation with Brian Hitch in just a second. But right now, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Aftershock Comics. I'm sure you've seen Aftershock titles on the racks of your favorite comic shops, a whole slew of fresh, high concepts written and drawn by your favorite creators. People like Garth Ennis and Russ Braun giving us Jimmy Bastards. Pestilence from Frank Thierry and Oleg Akunov, where the 14th century Black Plague from history is actually revealed as the first zombie outbreak. Or the early years of Vlad the Impaler in the Brothers Dracul from Cullen Brunn and Mirko Kolak. Those are just a few of the great titles. There's one that's coming up as far as an interview in the next couple weeks, and that is Lollipop Kids. It's by Adam and Adam Glass. It's drawn by Diego Yapur. When immigrants came to the New World, they didn't only bring their hopes and dreams, they also brought their monsters. Years ago, early settlers locked these monsters away in a secret prison deep in the woods of New Amsterdam, which of course became New York, so they'd never return to the old world again. These woods have since become Central Park, and now the monsters have escaped. It's a great concept and uh, a very fun title from Aiden and Adam Glass. You know Adam from his wonderful television work on things like Supernatural and other great comics. Diego Yapur, a fantastic artist. Sal Cipriano is doing the lettering, and uh, this is another great Aftershock project that deserves your attention. Aftershock books are available now. If you want to read about them more, you can check out original art pages and uh, get full descriptions of some of these books as well, plus the diamond codes on these books to order them through your local shop. Do all that now by going to aftershockcomics.com. All right, let's get back now to our conversation with Brian Hitch on Word Balloon. I, you know, you mentioned JLA, and I am sorry that that run with Wade wasn't able to continue. But really, man, your your solo JLA stuff was was just fantastic. And oh, thanks, absolutely, man. And especially that initial story about, and I think it was the first story about Rao. Yeah, that was Earth. well. At that point, this was long before Rebirth. There was the, the, the there was going we were going to run to the two books, JLA and Justice League, and I'd been out for a big conference at DC couple of years which is actually where i first met robert venditti when we first started talking about stuff um but um at that you know i was having dinner and, and jeff and i got talking and then you know the plan we started coming out with plans that we we're going to do with our two books with jla and with justice league and mm-hmm. how we we're going to add some more people to the team split the team and start doing crossovers as well fairly regularly um and you know we, we we're going to cook up lots of plans for that and then um uh, and then the ideas that we came up with in that conference ended up becoming eventually what what became Rebirth. Um, so it, it was um, it, it, those plans changed because then um, because it was going the twice monthly is what changed it. Jeff said I can't you know on the, with all the movie stuff I can't do a twice twice monthly book. Um, and um, so he, he and Dan asked if I'd do it and really I was kind of out of my depth on that because writing for other people was new. Um, the schedule was already, you know, we were already late because the first thing said, by the way, it said, I need two first issues uh, for two stories you haven't written yet because you have to start two artists at the same time. And right. Right. So I had to, I had to write two first issues that could, uh, and it was just, it, it was just more than I think I had no, 
uh, I hadn't got the the experience necessary really to pull off. Um, and by the time I started getting my he- my head around the structure, there was everybody was always running late. The art was always behind, um, and so they're always asking for another chunk of issues we could give to another guy to pull in. And um, it just it turned into um, well, not what I wanted it to be really. So I mean, I, there was a couple of good stories. I really liked the timeless story that um, Pissarin drew. He's yes. fantastic. I mean, he's tremendous. Um, and I really, really enjoyed um, the legacy one with the JLA's kids. That was, if I'd yes. stayed on the book, I had intended to stay on the book a bit longer. That was going to lead to something really huge. And they were going to stay around it, in the periphery of the story and come back into it. And the, the, the Aquaman character, because we couldn't use Aquaman, that bringing that future Aquaman in was kind of my way of getting Aquaman back into the book <laughs> and having a different relationship with Mira, who was going to be on the team. So it was... And I wanted to play with that and have this broken character who had, had gone through so much trauma and his family had rejected him and and, and his magical daughter had had, had, um, had magically made sure all the seas in the world rejected him. And he, he's living with parts of Cyborg's old body, keeping him alive. Wow. And, and you know, that, that, that was going to be a great character to start playing with. I wanted to do the Dark Knight Aquaman, basically, with him. Um <laughs> Uh, so and but I was building up to a really really big um, finale I never in in the end got to do so we had to I kind of had to put an ending onto the legacy story that wasn't intended for it um, unfortunately which I I only found out about before I read the final issue oh man Uh, yeah it was just it was schedules changed things changed internally Um, stuff was happening internally that 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 it just it just made more sense for me to 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 step aside really and i wasn't enjoying the process as a whole as much as i wanted to and you know as as the editor said at the time you know you've done all the jl issues and you've drawn all those and you've done um you know justice league and and honestly that you talk about the rouse story and because i was i was on that schedule trying to write the two issues and and i ended up drawing some as well of justice league Mm mm-hmm the final issue of the Rouse story um, just kept getting later and later. And in the end, um, I had to hand over a plot to, to be written by somebody else and drawn by somebody else. So, oh, wow. it, and, and, and I plotted the final issue was, of that story was going to be 38 pages. Um, and, and it ended up being crammed into a 20 page finale. Wow. So it never got to be, I never got to end that story the way I wanted. So the whole thing had kind of grown into a bit of a frustrating mess for me. So oh. I was, yeah, well, you know, yeah, it, you know, but it's it, it happens. You know, sometimes sure. that's the reality of the game. Some projects work really, really well, and some don't. So I learned an awful lot about how not to do stuff, which is always very useful um, as an experience. So, um, and I'm just working on, on on an outline now for a series I want to be writing and drawing after Hawkman. Um, so uh, yeah, fingers crossed that'll go out because that that's going to be pretty epic if we get to pull that off. So, man, I hope so, man. And and honestly. I appreciate what you're saying about the double shipping because I really believe, and I haven't had this direct conversation with him in years, but just based on our conversations as we talked, I think that's what drove Ed Brubaker away from doing, you know, DC or Marvel stuff because it's like it's too demanding. And and I, I appreciate as a reader, it is nice. I mean, God, I went into the shop this week expecting to see a new either Superman or action from Bendis. Yeah. And they're like, oh, no, no, it's not till next week. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. Last week was a skip week. I assumed, you know, that it's time for another issue or whatever to the point where, you know, you're you're almost expecting it as a reader. But mm-hmm. what we don't realize is really the pressure on the on the creatives 
to get this stuff out. And it is a deadline medium. And I think that's what makes it an interesting medium as much but, as it is demanding. But, yeah, if it's, you know, beyond, please. Uh, you, you no, I was going to say, so, I mean, yeah. I, I, I agree, but it, it was also massively, massively successful for DC. I mean, um, sure. as, as a you know, the whole rebirth thing was a huge, a huge success. And, it, it, you know, it also benefited from the double shipping, which actually um, the double shipping also you, you didn't get. Um, there's always a, an atrophy from a launch, a big launch. You always get the atrophy in numbers and there's an expected curve. Would you expect all the books to follow? And and early on in rebirth, they didn't follow that curve at all. So the double shipping um, kept the momentum high for a lot longer than it might otherwise have done. Understood. Uh, but Absolutely. Also, but then you also, you know, there's a trade-off, isn't there? Because you might get the same writer on all the issues, but you will never get the same art team on all yes. the issues. You get yes. art. And and in our case, you know, it was supposed to alternate between Tony Daniel and Passari, and Tony didn't feel like he wanted to stay on after the first one. That's fair enough. Um, and um, Passari was quick enough to certainly do far more, but they kept pulling him off to do other things. And then we get other artists on to do a few issues here and a few issues there. And, um, but I'm glad that he drew that. As I say, Pissarin, I think, is is an underrated genius. Um, I think he's tremendously talented, and and I would work with him again in a heartbeat. I'd love to write something for him because he always gives you back far more than you ask for, um, and and his drawing is impeccable. So, um, you know, his work on on the Timeless Arc and and the Legacy Arc, I was really really pleased with. I'm gonna have to revisit those, man. And again, I'm sorry that the ending of the Rouse story wasn't to your satisfaction, but I, I was really impressed with uh, looking at Kryptonian mythology in a different way. And, you know, for the, for years, it really was just great row. That's all we really knew was Superman making the exclamation. And I really thought this was a great look at religion and how it would impact earth. And uh, this kind of super being seemingly coming and, and being able to cure all the world's ills pretty effortlessly. And yeah. Superman himself skeptical and at the same time likely con- conflicted you know facing this portion of his own heritage yeah I, I, that that was certainly what i was trying to get across i'm glad he did maybe i'm not as bad a writer as i thought i was <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah it was it was a, it, those are themes that i grew up with though so I, you know I, I was i was brought up in a fairly strict catholic um you know upbringing and went okay. to catholic school um you know as, as a teen i actually went to seminary to be a priest Wow. Um, yeah, and uh, but I always I always use this. It's a it's a it's a goofy line, but the, it's probably true. Is that I discovered Superman was cooler than God, and so I went off and <laughs> drew comics, um, which is pretty much <laughs> pretty much how it happened. How Leninesque uh, of you? <laughs> I, I know. I mean, I actually it's 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 funny though because you know the, the, I was it, I grew up in this, this small northern town and and. Um, it was the, the parish church there was had a huge congregation and it was lots of large families and it was st- the sort of the tail end of the time when if you had if a family a catholic family had sort of several boys one of them you could guarantee would be sent to seminary to be a priest because it was a job you know um sure. <laughs> and um you know guaranteed employment um so um it, it, there was there was all of that and i think actually what attracted me to it was as a young boy was that I was ambitious and I wanted to be the guy in charge. So I think that's why I wanted to be the priest. So I had to send to mass on Sundays. So yeah, actually I want to do his job up there because that'd be much more interesting than sitting down here. Um, but you know, it just, I, when I went I, the seminary, I knew it wasn't for me when I went there, but I've always had this thing because I have this, this up, religious upbringing and you know, I, 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 
I don't have any belief in God or religions or, or anything like that. I don't have a problem with it. I don't want to convince anybody of, of my lack of belief any more than I want somebody else to convince me of their devout faith or belief. I'm all happy with them. We're all great with it. as long as we don't use it as an excuse to kill each other. That's great. Um, but, it, you know, I just I, I didn't have the kind of faith my parents had or the belief now, you know, one of my best friends is a Catholic priest. He's, a, he's the dean of Lancaster Cathedral in, in Northern England. And, uh, you know, we've known each other for decades. Um, and, you know, fortunately, um, he and I, you know, it, religions never got between us as a friendship, my lack of belief or his devout faith and belief. It's never it's never been an issue with us. Um, but I've had that kind of conflict in my my early life and that the, the idea that of, of embracing religion um openly in 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 literature in work uh, you know it, it's it for, for the small part it played in in our interpretation of thor in the ultimates to um to, to the Rao story it's still there there are other stories i want to tell that deal with aspects of, of faith and religion and and so on too and, and you know they'll happen in due course but it's, it's just an area that fascinates me actually um you know uh, you know i love you know because it, 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 I was always, I always, I always loved the myths. I loved the legends. I loved the Greek myths and the Greek legends. I loved the Norse mythology. You know, I followed that as much as I followed Catholicism as a kid. You know, um, and and it, there was a there was a kind of a eureka moment when I realised that once upon a time people believed in those gods just as much as we are taught to believe in this god, um, and and they didn't think of it as as fake mythology, you know. Um, it was just how the world worked. Yes, and, and again, and that's what we were taught in school. We grew up. We God existed. We were Catholics. It was all real. Everything that happened with Jesus was real, just exactly as it says in the Bible. But then there was another point. If if I thought to myself, you know, if all these these mythologies can create this these epics that we love to talk about and and constantly retread, and Jack Kirby can do that with the Thor stuff then it just it, it makes the magic and the mythology of the Judeo-Christian stuff just as appealing um, for, for epic adventure and big scale stories. And it doesn't have to be something that insults a person's faith or religion, I don't think. But, it, you know, I think it provides us with an opportunity to explore um, another take on mythology, another take on religion. And religion is still a huge part of the world. It still impacts um, yeah you know, impacts events weekly, daily, you know, usually so. Um, and I don't think we should shy away from that stuff. I agree with you. And I, and I can understand a publisher's worry of offending, uh, without even, you know, certainly it just, when you announce God, it happened again, we keep talking about Miller, uh, American Jesus, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. American Jesus. And everyone's like, what the fuck? And that's all they see is the title. And and you know immediately you know it's like uh, bring out the torches. All right, something's going wrong here. And and yeah, man, no, it's it's tough. It's a tough tightrope. And I appreciate writers and artists like yourself that are willing to take on the challenge and show that no, you can tell a really compelling religious story. I, uh, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, I, I thought uh, did yep. an amazing job exploring faith. And and you know the, that ran through the entire seven seasons. And I agree. I thought that was the best Star Trek show made, possibly until Discovery came out. Anyway, but do you um, like Discovery? I really do. I I do. I mean, for all its flaws, and there are flaws. I just I just I really admire its ambition a lot. You know, it's 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 a hugely ambitious show. It's the best looking Star Trek show ever. I agree with that. I absolutely um, agree with that. I, 
you know, I, just, I, and I, I like the, the attempt at doing, you know, a bigger scale, more in-depth story. I love that idea. And I love exploring the Star Trek universe like that. I'm rooting uh, for him, man. I got I, I was I was more disappointed than I mean, but again, I love Star Trek. The the trailer for the second season looks great. I always feel like it. I have to apologize for my disappointment in Discovery because you know, I just felt like the writing didn't it just wasn't smart Star Trek like smart Star Trek usually is. I thought that's what was missing, man. Myself. Yeah, you know that you're probably right. There were elements there were times when it felt more Star Trek than others. Um definitely. But uh, you know, I that trailer for season season two is a lot of fun, and it looks oh, yeah. like the show is going to be in a lot of fun too. Suddenly, it's it's elevated, it's lifted. Everybody's comfortable with themselves now. They're not all hating each other for um, you know all the things they've done um, <laughs> previously. Agreed. Absolutely, um, and and you're right. And and hey, hey man, I always say uh, I Mark Guggenheim, not to name drop the the showrunner for Arrow. He's a huge Star yeah. Trek fan. I I'm like, hey, it could be Star Trek Klingon latrine cleaning. And it's like, what time is it on? Let me know. Let me set my DVR, and I will be there to watch it. Absolutely, man. You know, it's, it's like the, the people – and I say this currently wearing a Laurel and Hardy T-shirt, but it's either Charlie – boy, Chaplin. that's awesome. Go on. Yeah, it's Laurel and Hardy or, or, or Charlie Chaplin. I mean, I appreciate Charlie Chaplin, but I love Laurel and Hardy. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, I can appreciate Star Wars, but there's something about Star Trek that just does it for me. I can't even tell you what it is because, you know – uh, you know, I've, 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 I enjoy the Star Wars movies, and I love the visual scope of the Star Wars movies. Um, uh, but you know, Star Trek's um, always been uh, been a huge thing for me, and you know, that's why it was such fun to work on that J.J. Abrams movie because it was just one of those lifetime ambitions realized. So I had no idea. Tell me about working on uh, the 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 J.J. Star Trek movie. That's okay. amazing. Uh, well, it was it was um it was it was one of those again and this is i realized a very common thread for me one of those both joyful and frustrating experiences <laughs> uh, what happened was um they were writing the screenplay um and damon lindelof was involved and it was uh, involved as producer as well with um alex bob and, and jj writing the screenplay um and, and and you know i know damon um and you know we'll meet up when we get the chance when we're in each other's towns and um and, and keep an email touch. And he, you know, we, he, so he told me they were, they were going to be doing, it was a big secret, J.J. was going to be doing the movie. And I just said, I would so really like to be involved in that. And so he he, he mentioned it to J.J. And and, and, he, and uh, Bob and Alex knew the work. And, and J.J.'s producer, Brian Burke, knew my work. Uh, and they were like, yeah, let's get him in. You know, so, wow. um, so, while, they were, so while they were writing the screenplay, um, they had a rough draft, which they sent a copy over to London to read. I had to go to somebody's house in London um, and sit in their um, sit in one of their rooms and read the script under guard um, and not be allowed to photograph. I had to surrender my phone and all this. It's all very I believe it. Absolutely, yeah. man. Anyway, so so I read it and it was, it was it was very rough. It was nowhere near the movie um, you saw. Nero was still in it. Um, there was much more about Spock and Kirk's childhood. Um, oh wow! In it, and it was um, it was it was all the idea. The key ideas were there, but it wasn't the the, the, the film you saw by any means yeah. by that point. But Spock, it, there was the elder Spock was still in it, and that was the big secret they didn't want anybody to get out was that Nimoy was coming in. Um, oh. Uh, they were writing, hoping he would say yes. If he said no, they were going to have to do a hell of a rewrite. Um, but um, but they said we need we need a spaceship for Spock. So um, you, you know, and I, I said, could you start on that now? Because there was no production design, there was no art department. They were still writing the screenplay. So I, I literally did a, a twenty minute um, sketch, um, first idea out my head, 
and emailed it over and JJ was like, that's the coolest fucking spaceship I have ever seen. We're, we're using that. And then everybody said, well, maybe we should do a few more passes. So I did about another 10, 10 sketches and no, and, and Jay said, no, I'm sticking with the first one. That's great. That's it. And a friend of mine, um, Neil Bushnell, who's uh, who, um, an English guy who does um, a computer, um, cgi work um okay. he's actually actually an author now anyway but he, back then he was doing cg work and he created um a turnaround um and moving model for me to show of so it could because i wanted to it, to show how it could twist and turn and move yes yeah um and so um so we sent everybody was quite happy with that and then there was a, there was up and downs about whether it was going to be green it they had to do another another draft months and, and my wife and i were talking about having another baby and um so you know the idea was that you know they'd get a green light and i would go to uh, to la for a few months and work on the movie and, and work on the designs and stuff with them which is all very exciting and um and so we, we toyed with this idea of having another baby um up and down for a while and, and they said look you know that they, they paramount was so back and forth on whether they're going to green light it and whether the movie's even going to get made um, the chances of them coinciding are so minimal. Uh, well, let's just let's just try and have the baby, and we were very successful almost instantaneously. Um, in fact, um, suddenly that day we were pregnant, and um, oh and God, then yeah. and then <laughs> and then Ted was born, and the day Ted was born, we got the green light. So I couldn't actually go over to LA to work fully on the movie and yeah, planned. Sure. And uh, so JJ said, "Well, just do it. You know, do it from home." Um, just work from home do just you know do what you can and we'll we'll you know um and we'd had conversations on the phone um in fact one con- the conversation um what the first conversation i had i was trying to talk about how to get scale which is something you never really got in the tv shows because the ship basically floated left to right yes. all the time yeah. it was sailing on the ocean and the, the camera would always pass either close to the ship or between the nacelle and the ship in a way that made you think that either it's an enormous camera or it's a very small ship. I just thought the scale was always off. Um, so I tried to describe this scene to, to JJ about um, about how you needed to get really close to the ship, so close that you can virtually t- touch the portholes. Then it it pulls out and you get a sense of perspective on the ship. Um, and, and, and you get the ship then fills the screen and then it goes off into the distance and it's then it's suddenly tiny again it's the vast expanse of space now you know how big space is because you've been that close to a ship you know how big the ship is and when you see that that ship and then suddenly Nero's ship appears opposite it you know just how vast Nero's ship is so I described this scene on the phone it wasn't in the script or anything so imagine my surprise when we went to see the film that's the opening three minutes of the movie so <laughs> Because uh, what happened was, so we were, I'm back at home and I'm doing the design work, or about to, and, and the production designer um, calls me, who Scott Shambliss calls me, and, and his first words, which didn't bode well for me, were, I've been told I have to work with you. Okay. So it <laughs> sort of went downhill from there, and in the end, oh. it, just, it just wasn't worth, and he clearly wasn't using or looking at any of the stuff I was submitting at that point, so... Um, so I never got to do the enterprises, which was the real goal. You know, Spock's ship was, was great. So, you know, I, so I drifted off the movie. Um, and, um, and I, 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 where I went to see, I didn't go to the premiere. They invited me over to LA for the premiere. I didn't want to go. Cause I, you know, I'd felt like, well, what's the point, you know? Um, I suppose the point was a free trip to LA to see a Star Trek movie. <laughs> <actually>. <laughs> <laughs> the follies of youth, you know, <laughs> 
Is that perspective you were talking about? Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And nor did I go to the London premiere when they came over for that. Um, So I went to see it at the local cinema with with Andrew Curry. And Andrew had been in my office all the time when I'd been, because we were sharing a studio. He was he would he was in my office all the time. I was talking on the phone. He'd seen all the stuff that I'd done while I were writing the script. You know, he'd heard all my ideas. He was a sounding board when I had. So, so everything from you know every every idea that I had for the film uh, that expressed, um, he knew about, including what I just described about the scale stuff. So we're sitting there watching the movie, and I, I, I'd been told by the art director that uh, the, the production designer nothing of my designs really stayed in it, and they completely changed Spock's ship. So, oh, well, you know, fair enough, that's movies for you, I guess. Um, so I was I was absolutely floored when I saw the movie, um, and and that it was just everything we all wanted it to be. You know, visually, it was everything we'd been describing while they were making the scripts. Um, uh, and and Spock ship is exactly as uh, as I I mean there's um, there was a lot more detail to it obviously because I'd only at that point done a fairly loose sketch but it was yeah. still the same ship oh, that's and great. it still moved the same way um, and Damon Lindelof later said every single idea I had was in the movies from the the view screens being windows and and all that stuff to how the 60s retro stuff could be actually made to look ultra cool and modern and. You know, it's, so it's, it was it was very exciting to see that, and I still I still love that I've had that kind of impact. That even on Discovery, they're still having the view screen windows, yes. um, um, and all. There's little details that I noticed too that that are, that are, that have kind of followed through is now being accepted as standard Star Trek stuff. So it's it's been great fun to work, have worked on Doctor Who and that, and had an impact on both things, even if. You know, in in the main, especially on Star Trek, it was entirely uncredited and unknown by the general public. But That's it was awesome. still, it was still, it's still nice to have done oh it. It's, you know, yeah, it, my, as you said, you know, I, I'm I'm with you on the the Klingon latrine cleaning uh, <laughs> stuff. I would watch that shit, literally. <laughs> I hear you, man. No, exactly. I well, God, I I don't know what kind of uh, budget IDW has, but it sounds like you need to talk to them about doing a Star Trek comic at some point. I don't you know, know if you I, want I, to. well, I have I have had a couple of goes at it from time to time, but it's not the same. It honestly isn't the same because it's just you're drawing representations of actors, and it's I, it's. Not, I hear you. Sure. It, it it's not, and it's honestly it it's it just doesn't click in the same way as okay. I mean, the fun, the fun thing about that was being able to go into something where JJ's saying, um, look, it, we, we're remaking the original series. Everything's up for grabs. How do we make that original series modern, cool, interesting, fun, big? Sure. You know, and, and, that, and the same with Doctor Who is when you're taking something that's, that's older and trying to bring it to life for a modern audience visually doing something that they haven't done before. That's the exciting stuff. The you day-to-day stuff isn't as exciting as just being able to to design the TARDIS and then go and stand and walk around it. You know, uh, that was great. You know, that's interesting. But having to do day-to-day um, work on kind of drawing Cisco's likenesses or Shatner's likeness or that kind of stuff, it wouldn't appeal to me in the same way because I don't think yeah. <coughs> it's, 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 I can draw likenesses, but it's not something I enjoy doing as much anyway. I respect that. No, I, I totally understand that. Am, am I taxing you with time? Because I know it's like eleven twenty your time, and I, I don't want to keep you up. But I, if you have, if, if you're cool, then yeah, I don't mind. Because man, you've opened up another door to walk through, and that's Doctor <laughs> Who. Because I, you know, that's the thing, Brian. I do forget about 
your contributions to TV and film and stuff. So, yeah, what when did you work on Doctor Who? What period? It was the beginning. It was when um, when Russell oh, Davis. Yeah, yeah, that was that was my uh, thing. What happened was, um, uh, you know, I, I was friends with the guys who um, do SFX magazine over here. Which... Oh, sure. Yeah, I, I am pleased to say Word Balloon has been in SFX magazine. Excellent. It blew my mind that I was in FS, SFX magazine, that they knew who I was. So, uh, so yeah, there's a guy who's been writing for them for, for donkey's years called Nick Setchfield. And, you know, we, we're friends. We keep in touch. Um, and, you know, he emailed me to say, I've just heard they've cast Eccleston. You know, um, and I was like, that's that's great. Absolutely. I said to him, can I have Russell's email address by any chance? <laughs> um, so I said, this is this is shit I've got to get into. So um, normally they wouldn't do it. But um, uh, he he gave it to me without actually asking Russell, which is probably a bit naughty. But anyway, so I wrote Russell this email. I said, look, you, you don't know who I am. You're not going to know who I am at all. But. Um, I've done this comic and this comic and this comic, and I'm a massive Doctor Who fan. I grew up with this stuff. If there's any possibility I could come in and contribute to the show, that would be great. But obviously, you know, I understand that you don't know who the fuck I am. But if you wanted to kind of look me up, you you know. Anyway, with two minutes later, I get this email back saying, oh, my God, you're the Brian Hitch. You know, it's like, <laughs> I love your work. I've known you for ages. Of course you can come on the show. That's come, come and meet us tomorrow. So, you know, I was like, <laughs> okay, well, that wasn't expected. <laughs> Um, so I went into, and this again, it was one of those lovely periods where it's just, um, it, at that point there was just, there was just Russell Davis, um, uh, and the BBC producer, Julie Gardner. Okay. And, and again, they, they just hired Ed Thomas as production designer. who was lovely. And we got on great from, from the start, <coughs> mostly cause I, you know, I said, I'm not, I don't want your job. You know, this, that's, I'm just here as kind of a. I suppose they never had, they never tried to make a show like American shows and movies where they have production designers for the whole show. Previously on Doctor Who, um, each story of each one of those stories in each, in each of the seasons would have a different production designer, different producer, different wow. design, um, because they worked in little, little units. So each kind of serial, cause they were serious. Like, um, there were four part stories right. at 20 oh, sure. minutes long. So, um, they often had, um, a whole team of production designers, so they never, they'd never tried to make um, an American style forty-two minute um, or hour long as, as it is with the adverts, um, you know, American style drama, and that's what yeah. they wanted this to appeal to. Because at one of the earliest um, full production meetings, Russell um, put everything Galactica and Buffy and all these big American shows, and they said, "This is what we have to do," and we have a tenth of the budget. Because it's the BBC, you know. Of course, yes, yes. <clears throat> so, um, so uh, you know, but again, in the earliest earliest days, it was just uh, it was just Ed Thomas w- would uh, would drive up to from Wales to my my place, and we'd pull out books and architecture stuff, and we'd talk about ideas that would feed back into into meetings and stuff. Um, when it was again just the small small group of us, just Russell the BBC producer, Ed and me. And that's always the most fun is when you just, you, you're coming at it with nothing. Because Russell's saying in one meeting, you know, should he even have, should we even have an inside of the TARDIS? Do we need to see it? Because he only really gets him from one story to another. Do we need the TARDIS set? You know, because it's going to be hideously expensive. Um, in the end, we thought we'd do it. And then, you know, I designed um, the basic setup for the for the TARDIS. Um, and, um, and, that, and, um, they had they had thirteen thousand pounds to to build the TARDIS set with, 
um, and and they budgeted the cut the build cost at a quarter of a million. So um, they were kind of off on their estimations in terms of of what they could do. So so they never got to build the whole thing. It was only ever built two thirds of it was built. It was supposed to be a fully enclosed set, and it was only they only ever built two thirds of it because um, <clears throat> that's all they could afford. And then it was supposed to be originally pretty much the structure of Capaldi's tide is the three levels the mezzanine level the middle level and the underneath bit okay. and it was that and the door was supposed to be on the middle level that's exactly the structure you see on Capaldi's so imagine mm-hmm. Capaldi's tide structure but with those big flying buttresses of mine um from from um from Eccleston's tardis and, sure. and David Tennant's tardis so that's um that was what it was supposed to look like and um, the, B- the BBC hired a, a studio space outside of Cardiff um, to, to build it, and the, they hired because they said they had the height for the for the TARDIS build, and they had the height of this um, this warehouse as as being tall enough to hold the TARDIS set. And then when they when they after they'd hired the space, signed all the contracts, um, uh, the production designer finally went to have a look at the studio space to see where they were going to start laying out all the constructions. And they instead of built, hiring a, a structure with a flat roof that's equal height, they'd hired one which has sloping roofs on two sides, and only the middle section itself um, has the height that's big enough for the TARDIS set. But also that's where they put all the structures that are holding up the roof, all the all the all the you know the great um, tall beams that hold up the roof. So in fact, we had to reduce the TARDIS. We had to move it out to the centre of the studio and into the side which is actually only big enough for one story rather than a three-story set. So we had to cut out. They were originally going to cut it out completely and just have the the console be on the floor. Um, And I was was, pushed to kind of keep that, um, even though there's no room underneath it, I did push to keep that central section elevated slightly off the floor. Um, And the mezzanine doesn't really exist. There's a couple of... um, like very small, if you actually look at that TARDIS, there's a couple of kind of small balconies you can't get to that wouldn't fit anybody on it. Um, <laughs> just st- stuck up there on the side because it's all it's all that was left of the um, of the concept by the time they'd reduced the set to to a single story. It still worked on the whole, but it, it was sure. nowhere near quite the scope we'd all imagined it to be. Um, but it was it was you know that honestly the, the the greatest lark alive was to 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 walk around something like that once you've you've been working on the design of it and it's all on paper and then just to stand on it and, and see it made real was was just the biggest thrill. So I'm standing on the set you know the day before Eccleston's due to to film and it hasn't been finished. We've spent the morning um, gaffer taping all sorts of of odds and ends onto the console because <laughs> no we it wasn't finished. It, it, in fact. When they first, I think they've changed it for later editions, but when they first broadcast it, the first time you see Eccleston standing on the TARDIS set when Rose goes in, there's no lighting inside the TARDIS because they hadn't even fitted the lights when they <laughs> shot that scene. And then, so he filmed that, went off to do something, and they hastily put some lights in. So when he comes back and does the second part of the scene, they've got some lighting in it. So it, it's a, it was bizarre at first because one part of the scene's lit, the next part isn't. Um, <clears throat> so... So Russell says to me, so, you know, you've designed the TARDIS, you know, here it is, you know, what's next? I said, bridge of the enterprise. So um, he said, do you think you'll ever get to do it? I said, probably not a chance in hell, but you know, you never know. And then, you know, the year later or a year or two later, this, um, you know, the Star Trek movie came up and 
<laughs> and I, although I didn't get to do the Bridge of the Enterprise, I walk around on it. I came damn close. So um, absolutely, man. And I loved with Spock's ship that uh, gyroscope motion. Yeah, to propel it and everything was was really an interesting design. Do you need water, Brian? I don't want to like. No, it's, it's um, I've got some. I'm, I'm drinking as um as okay, we talk. Um, okay. No, it totally because believe me, I, I you know sometimes I love these in depth conversations. I always appreciate it, but by the same token, I try to watch out for my guys. And it's like, hey, if you need a second, no problem. You know, so, so. when I'm gasping and my 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 voice breaks completely, you can let me go. It's I can I can I can talk till then. <laughs> um, were there other films and TV things that you know of, of note that you know, or even of not of note, but just enjoyable uh, things that you've worked on? Yeah, some stuff's come up that hasn't come up across, and and even though it was uncredited, I was, um, I probably shouldn't admit to it. Um, I was heavily involved in the Fantastic Four movie with Josh Trank. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, I was I was involved. Um, really again really early on when it was just it was josh and jeremy slater was the writer and me and that was it um and so <clears throat> uh, and at least initially there was there was um a lot of story conversations as well as design conversations and the film kept moving there, there was there was a point when when we had to present something um to the the, the powers that be at fox or at least josh had to anyway um and the producers had to and, and and we all felt we had a really good Fantastic Four movie. Then the story was pretty strong. I mean, the final acts always need work, but you know the final act was was the weakest bit. Um, but um, you know it was strong. It was strong on character. There was a lot of humor in the character stuff. It really reminded me Slater's script by that point. Really reminded me a lot of of good of great Spielberg eighties movies. You know, okay. I mean, it just it really had that vibe to it. Um, and it was big and high concept, and 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 it just felt like it's going to be a lot of fun. But the only note that came back from from um, I think what's her name was it em, Emily Watson? It, um, anyway, oh, she was the head. Go on. Oh no, yeah. she's the head of Fox like production or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, she she basically said, and I've, I've heard this. I didn't hear this directly from her. I heard this from Josh. But she basically said, "That's a Marvel movie. I don't want a Marvel movie." Um, <laughs> And and Oops. you know that you yeah, well that 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 kind of derailed things a little bit. Um, sure. I know we plugged away at it, and Josh then wanted to go and do something a bit more indie vibe and a bit low, a bit more low tech. I mean, actually, some of the design stuff that would have been fun was like the the, the quantum gate they built was a much bigger thing, much more like um, the size of something the size of CERN. You know, it was huge. Um, initially, and that was what they were going to go into the negative zone with. And Annihilus was going to be the the lead villain, not not <laughs> Doctor Doom. Doctor Doom was going to, Victor was going to become Doctor Doom by the end of the movie, but he wasn't going to be the villain. Um, and um, so Annihilus, so I designed the Annihilus for it, um, and I designed this huge quantum gate, like a vast particle accelerator. And and the, their part, their pod was going to be inserted. This was in the ceiling of the building, and the pod was going to be inserted upwards into it, like a hole in the roof on this huge arm that um, Johnny could controlled from a PS4 controller because he couldn't handle Reed's tech and Reed was going to kind of basically in this cute little scene, you know, Johnny has all these controls, but he can't figure out how to fly it. So in a quick, quick cut scene, Reed kind of reduces all these wires to, to less wires to fewer controls and then eventually gives him everything all wired up to a PS4 controller, um, which he flies. And, and what they'd done um, was that they'd they'd stolen one of the jet, one of the um, the Apollo capsules from um, from the Smithsonian, and that's what they were going to go to the negative zone in. 
and it so they, it was kind of a little bit of heist to get that out of the smithsonian which is kind oh, of wow. a thing and then they they steal that in order to because this wasn't a, a government funding this was like a a, a real kind of um backroom mission so to get this so instead of building their own capsule they stole one of the, the the lunar landing ones and all this stuff just kind of started disappearing as it went more and more low-tech and more and more indie and, and um you know um it, yeah I, I wasn't there for any of the shoot I, my last involvement with the movie was um josh got me out to to um baton rouge where they were shooting um about five weeks before they were due to start filming um and um basically said we have we have no we have not we can't we can't come up with the action for can can you do it so i said but what i mean draw it he said no come up with it so can I'm you repeat like, that because okay. you dropped you dropped out for a second so Sorry. they couldn't come up to what they, they, they come up with what couldn't come up with they hadn't come up with basically the 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 action for the final act you know the big action set piece they didn't know what it should be or could be um they just knew it was going to be them against victor in the negative zone so um I basically wrote, um, and not dialogue, I just basically wrote um, a structure for how the action would work and then did some storyboards for it. Um, and it's a shame we didn't get to do that because it was pretty epic. But uh, again, it's one of the, when, once the production started shutting down with all of its troubles uh, and they started, um, um, the, the, the first things that they do are take away all the really expensive stuff um, because they're going to decide they're not going to spend any more money on it because this is just going to be one of those things they're going to look forward to burying as quickly as possible. Wow. And it, it's, it's, it's unfortunate it, it got more and more that way as the production went on because, again, initially, and it's that pattern again, um, maybe it's me. I've just realized I'm the fucking curse. <laughs> um, but, yeah, <laughs> um, you know, early on it was just it was such a big, hopeful, energetic, you know, experience with with um, something that 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 looked like it was going to be a, a a lot of a lot of fun as an end product, and it just ultimately never ended up being that way, which is a shame because um, the plans for Galactus in the second film were pretty awesome. Wow! So, yeah, you know, and, I, was, and, and I, I feel for you, and and I honestly feel for Josh Strank because I really loved Chronicle. Yes, uh, and, me and, too. and that's the thing, man. It's like no, this guy gets nerd culture and knows how to tell a good story. And I do feel bad that, you know, I, I hope that he is able to crawl out of the rubble of uh, Fantastic Four and, you know, kind of kind of get something new going. I have no idea what he's doing currently. Oh, he's, he's just he's just written and directed that um, Capone movie with um, uh, Tom Hardy. Oh wow! Okay. Oh, that's great. Yes, yeah, so it's it's, a, it's about Al Capone when he comes out of prison in his final years. Oh my so, god! Yeah. yeah, when he's all syphilis out and kind yeah. of crazy too. Yeah, that's oh the my one. god. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea that was being made. I, I just, you know, being a Chicago guy, know my Capone story and everything. And uh-huh. uh, yeah, that's wow. That is ambitious. And man, especially for Hardy to play that kind of role. That's, I know, I think that sounds great. I, know, I think there's quite a bit of heavy makeup for him on it because of, you know, the syphilis is, is uh, amongst other things, but and the age too. But sure. um, but yeah, it's um, it, it's yeah, I hope it works. Yeah, Josh is one of the doing a Capone story is one of Josh's ambitions. He, um, I mean, it's a shame that the, it all went so south because um, his it, the, the plans they were cooking up for the Boba Fett movie were. Right? I probably shouldn't even be talking about that. But oh, anyway. that's right. No, I do yeah. remember that he was yeah. involved with he the was. Star Trek movies and stuff. Yes. So, so the Boba Fett movie was was his going to be his next film after Fantastic Four, and then he wanted to do. Hopefully, there would have been a Fantastic Four two, which was going to be the big Galactus story. Um, 
and the plans for that were also then going to merge with the with the X Men movies. They're going to do a Fantastic Four X Men movie. Made sense, um, sure. Well, they yeah. had all the licenses. Why not? Yeah, yeah well, interesting. Yeah. Um, well, and you know, I, I I've heard the same thing about um, the CW network, the American Television Network that does all the DC superhero stuff. Um, the CW, one of its principal media partners was this company, is this company called Tribune Media. They've divested from the CW since, but their president at, at, a, at a programming meeting is like, what's with all the superhero shit? Do we really care about this? And, you know, the minority opinion, and he's not with the company anymore. But, yeah, there's always somebody that just doesn't get it. That Decca Records executive that gets the Beatles demo and is like, yeah, the guitars are on the way out. Thanks anyway. Not interested. <laughs> yeah. So. You know, that's the, this is our world, man, where executives get in the way of, of great creatives. And I, But, you know, it's interesting. And I know, like you said, you want to get back to your creator-owned stuff. I do appreciate the democratization of the technology to make this stuff because now uh, – and also the, the bigger platforms and all the different platforms out there as far as TV and film because now I think it is getting easier for creatives to kind of get their vision the way they want it to be. Well, you know, again, the Netflix and Amazon platforms, I mean, it's changing the way we all view um, a lot of things. And, and TV, I mean, as much as I love the big budgets of the movies, you know, I love the long-form storytelling of TV shows. Absolutely. Um, you know, because movies end up becoming the Reader's Digest version of the story. Agreed. Uh, Yes, yeah, um, but but you know you get game changers like The Wire, and you get game changers like The Sopranos, and then um, Breaking Bad and Dexter, and and oh, yeah. uh, um, and obviously Game of Thrones too, which is the most yes. expensive show ever made. And also you know shows like The Crown on Netflix, which doesn't look like Love it should it. be expensive, but is you Love know creating all of that period stuff. Um, oh God, yes. You know, you know no. You know, I adore that. Too, but that's that's my kind of storytelling. It's it's. I know it doesn't sound like it's big scale, but it is. It's big scale storytelling still. I mean, Game of Thrones is obviously epic, yes, um, but all that other stuff is still big scale because it's the it's the large world you're build you're building. You have a core group of characters and a large world they're in, and it it is in its own way epic story storytelling. Absolutely, um, God, The Sopranos is a classic example. You you have this great lead story of Gandolfini and his family, but then as the seasons progress, you can spend one episode, and it's one. Of the best ones with uh, Polly Walnuts and Christopher mm-hmm. in the in the car, without you know out of gas in the woods and stuff, and they, yeah, that was you know, great. Just them screaming at each other for forty minutes, and it's fantastic. It is so, but that's absolutely you, you, man. you couldn't have done that as a scene in a movie; it wouldn't have been interesting. But because it's um, you've spent time over years getting to know these characters, you, yep. you, the payoff of giving you, giving you more of them is worth it. No, I agree, and and it's um, th- you know that's. That is where TV and, and comics come together, and and I'm I'm glad that uh, not only at DC and Marvel, but also in a lot of these image uh, projects, some of these creators will you know really tell a great epic you know long story and can get into you know some of these side characters for a couple issues. Jason Aaron and and RM Gera did it with Scalped, mm-hmm. and um, Fraction and Shaken did it with Satellite Sam, you know. Those yeah, are, it's, it, it's interesting with that TV stuff, though, because I suppose you can trace that TV, um, uh, the stuff we all love, right back to Buffy. Um, sure. You know, because nobody was doing genre TV like that before Joss did it. You're right about that. No, you're absolutely right about that. And I do. I, I came to Buffy and Angel late. I came to Angel first. 
because my, uh, okay. my ra- one of my radio bosses is like, I think you, I really think you'd like Angel, and he's like, well, now that you like Angel, you got to watch Buffy, and I'm like, yeah, you're right. So I, I did. Yeah. And, you know, because as we get older, how much you know, how much investment can we make in teenage you know angst? I mean, I appreciate it, but it's like. All right, that was thirty years ago. My face cleared up since then. I, you know, I, I've moved on. But uh... <laughs> when, when but it must have been well into when Angel was on. But um, when uh, my wife was pregnant with our third child, um, which is 50, 16 years ago, I suppose now. Okay. But um, you know, she, I'd been watching, you know, Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, and she's like, "What is this? You know, it's, it's, it's nerd stuff. It's geeky stuff." You know. <laughs> And I said, look, watch, watch an episode with me. You know, and this was on video then. This wasn't even DVD. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> um, um, so, you know, I, I put some of it on. And she's like, yeah, this is all right. You know, and um, so I went off. Into, I had an office out of the house then. So I went off to work that morning. Um, and uh, and I came back and she was still in, in sitting in my bedroom, in our bedroom, watching Buffy. I said, will you watch another couple of episodes? She says, no, I'm on season two now. Um, and next day it was like season three. It was like, <laughs> just so basically for about five weeks, you just watched all of Buffy and Angel, um, wow. nonstop. So, help Powerful through stuff, man. It, well, and also think of all those writers now of, of Buffy and Angel that are show running, Steve I know, tonight and Tim Minear and, yeah. and Mari Noxon and, and all of these Drew people. Goddard. Just, yeah, who else? Drew Goddard. Drew Goddard, of course, absolutely. I mean, yeah, no, uh, great stuff, absolutely, and and great writers. And uh, uh, no, he uh, he assembled an amazing team, and they've gone off to uh, create amazing television. It's absolutely. it's true, man. It's you know, and I, they do. They say it's the second golden age of TV. It absolutely is. Well, and Joss like has gone said, back to it now as well. You know, Joss has gone back to you know they just announced that new drama is going to make Victorian set supernatural female led drama. Um, that his, oh, I uh, didn't hear. I hadn't uh, heard that. I don't. I, can't, um, uh, I think they only announced the title and the concept for it. I, you know, there's. Uh, I know. I was, I was emailing him the other day because he's coming over because they're going to shoot over here. So, um, you know, I get to hang out. I guess, which would be cool. Oh my uh, god! I've known Joss for years. Um, we've been friends for, for, for fifteen years now. So, wow. Um, That's and again, great. It, I'd love to get him on the show sometime. He's amazing, and I love his work. And I'm. Uh... No, I'm a I'm a I'm a long fan. I met him briefly in San Diego. I put out a a small transcribed bit of interviews that I had done for Word Balloon within my first year, and um, they were they were handing them out at uh, the Century Guild Art Gallery booth at San Diego, which is always a beautiful booth of like great old clamped prints and turn of the century uh, pop art and stuff. Really interesting stuff. And and Whedon was there. And I recognized him right away, and I handed him one. And he saw that Loeb was on the cover, and I forget who else. And he's like, hey, I know a bunch of these guys. And I yeah. said, I know. That's why I was hoping you'd, you'd check it out. And for a while, we went back and forth, and, and I had hoped to get him on, but uh, it, you know, things just didn't work out. So, And I, he's, I'm sure he's gone through several assistants since then. But uh, no, longtime fan. And, and, and yeah, man, and truly, even Buffy, I, like you said, it's just strong writing and it's strong characters. And you could – the Zeppo. When they when they focus on Xander and yeah. Cordelia says that horrible thing to him and yeah. all those episodes when Anya you know Anya gets her solo moment in Buffy and same thing in in Angel with Fred and Cordelia yeah. and all all those great characters Wesley there's the, oh. there's, there's the silent episode as well you know yes. but, uh, which is, and the musical episode absolutely which, uh, because Joss <laughs> is a huge fan of musicals um, <laughs> so and he's and he's done it better frankly I've appreciated. 
that Supergirl and and that you know the kids from Supergirl and the Flash that used to be on Glee wanted to kind of do the same thing. It really wasn't. It really was more of a karaoke time of hey, let's yeah. just sing a bunch of poppets. And I'm like, no, man, the cleverness of of uh, you know uh, once again or how uh, once more with feeling is uh, that that they integrated the songs into the story. Yeah, and it was this brilliant real musical. They you know I, I'm I know it's been performed at various conventions and stuff, but that episode really could be its own little Broadway production. I think Joss has always wanted to make a big scale. I know Doctor Horrible was a musical. Doctor Horrible, rocks, absolutely. But, yes. uh, but you know, his, 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 he would love to make you know a big scale, full on movie musical. You know, um, so he never got around to it for some reason. I, I know he's <laughs> he's talked to Stephen Sondheim about stuff. Wow. So uh, yeah, interesting Jesus. guy. Yeah, crazy stuff, man. I would you ever want to do any of the uh, CW? you know dc hero shows in any in any way either design or, or writing or anything like that uh, you know i, I maybe time. um yeah it is time and honestly if um i i'd rather turn i suppose my time to something more something original that's mine than um sure you know um because again it's just like in comics it's a it, there's a production um schedule there's a you know, you're going to have to live by, and there's a production process that you're going to have to to work sure. to as well. And again, with those those designers, they're they're a rapid turnaround, very very efficient shop because they all know each other, and there's nobody throwing uh, wrenches into the mix by chucking in stuff they can't afford to do and wasting everybody's time. So, you know, it, I think um, I'm I'm probably better off creating stuff for comics. Um, or, or new material from scratch, you know, honestly. Um, and, and that's probably where my interest is because I'm certainly not short of ideas and stories. And, and I think that's what I want to spend my time doing is telling them. Um, and, and not, and that doesn't mean not doing DC stuff because I've got bags of DC stuff I want to do. Um, and, uh, cause you know, that, that, that's what I grew up reading DC. I didn't even know Marvel existed till I was, um, I was virtually a professional, um, I mean, I was a professional from age 16. So, you know, it, it was um, it was only in my teens when I, I first saw the, um, you know, the end of Walt Simonson's Thor stuff. Um, okay. And 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 it was um, the, the last two issues of Miller and Matt Kelly's Daredevil story. Oh, sure. Born again. That's yes, they were the first they were the first Marvel comics I read um, because they were, you know, the small town where I was growing up we had we had the cinema and right next door to the cinema was um a news agent and every month in that news agents from from the early middle 1970s when i first started going in there um they just get um a pile um of outdated several months of out they're all the same months but they were all three months out of date because they used to come comics used to come over as ballast on ships um <laughs> I love that story. And, and they it's would, amazing. They, and they would go to a central news agency distribution thing, and they'd just be sent out random piles of these. So some towns sure. only got Marvels, some towns only got DC comics. <laughs> <clears throat> and this one place in in the town that sold it just it, it just sold this pile. It was like a, um, a I remember it being something like a, a foot high pile of comics every month, and I was obviously the only one buying them. So I'd go in there. I'd like. I remember it like you know going to see Superman and going next door, and I'd, I wouldn't buy any sweets in the cinema or any drinks because I'd save my money so I could go next door and buy a few more comics that month. <laughs> um, and so I think that's actually, actually an interesting way of looking at it though, because I think that's why 
um, cinema and comics are so combined in how I choose to work because because I, I was as much a fan of film as I was of comics and and the two were literally next door to each other literally around the corner from my house was the cinema and the, the news agent that sold the comics and the two in memory are, are constantly combined so you know you'd have the choice of buying you're going to see the film but you'd have money for sweets and for a drink but I'd rather spend that on the comics and then I'd have the cinema experience then I'd go home and read the comics and get lost in those and read and reread them and then I'd save up more pocket money to go to the cinema the following week and it's just I think those two in combination are why film and comic you know I, I don't I don't differentiate necessarily between the two in visual approach you know um, and maybe where there's a cinematic lean to the artwork is because I, I, I've always seen the two. I've seen Superman on screen when I was reading them in the comics. And that was when it all formed in my head about, uh, you know, this is what I want to do for a living. Um, I understand, man. And I and uh, I always appreciate, forgive the generalization, but hearing British people, uh, first of all, discover comics as they did. The fact that they were coming over as, as you say, ballast. I mean, so literally – like dead weight yeah, that becomes found art, basically. Yeah, that's and, right. And also what characters uh, you you all find interesting because I always know there's a C or D level, DC or Marvel character oh, yeah. that in the right British hands, it's <laughs> like, oh, yeah, by the way, I know you never thought about Robbie Reed Dial H for Hero this way, but dot, dot, dot. And it's like, oh, my God, this is fantastic. And also as an older reader myself, I, I just love a lot of – I think we're about five years apart, I think, in years. And I'm 53. And, um, uh, yeah, I'm 40, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. you know, it's a lot of these – it's a lot of, again, these these side characters, Dr. 13 and some of these others that it's like, oh, that's what you guys find interesting. That's amazing. And characters that I hadn't thought of in decades. And it's like, oh, God, there they are and totally fleshed out. Oh, well, you know, given free reign, I would love to do um, a massive um, – uh, Western story with all the DC Western characters. Oh, that'd be great. Um, you know the Jonah Hex and, and Batlash, Batlash and and, yes. and all of those, all of them. You know, Cin- Scalp Cinnamon. Hunter. Yeah, Cinnamon, Scalp Hunter, all that. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I I I mean, I know the story. I just really what I need to do is put the time down because I think Dan's open to it. You know, as a, as a, as a concept because you know, again, it's one of those things. I suppose if you if you've got the right story and the right creative team, and I would personally, I would like to write it and have Garcia Lopez pencil it and Kevin Nolan ink it. That would be my oh, dream. Be I mean, I would love to do it myself, but I would rather they did it um, because I know Garcia Lopez adores westerns um, and put Kevin on him, and he's just it's it's wonderful. So, um, you know, ideally, I'd like to do this, and again, you know, you might just get a hell of a you know short lived but hell of a. Um, uh, product out of that a really nice hardcover that you could be sure. proud of for the rest of your life because you know but again for me it's those those are the characters that were because as a kid what well, i'd work my way through the pile i'd always want the supermans and anything drawn by garcia lopez all the batmans sure. well you work way through a pile and by the end of the month the only comics left were the scalp hunters and the jonah hexes and and I, you know then <laughs> Then I, but then I'd, I'd buy them and I'd enjoy them just as much because it was a comic and it was escapism and it was a whole different world and it was and I loved the westerns because I love western movies too. My dad loved westerns, so you know I was always happy watching old, really old westerns. You know the Gary Cooper stuff on sure. TV. You know I, I loved, um, you know the weekends and the holidays because all the old movies were on. Everything you know we didn't have a lot of children's TV back then. Mm-hmm. You know we had we had three TV stations and. Um, and and there was uh, two hours of kids TV programs every evening between four and six, and that was it. Um, I hear you. 
Yeah. And and so, you know, you what you watch with the other stuff, you watch the movies that your parents watched and they weren't made for children. So uh, no other TV shows. So you, you kind of your your education in drama was very different because it wasn't based on fantasy. It was based on melodrama and personal drama or it was Westerns and the heroes, the you know, heroic fiction, whether it's Westerns, um, you know, barbarian fantasy, historical um, um, fantasy or historical f- fiction or historical drama or superheroes, it's still heroic fiction. You know, the, the rules sure. are still the same. The dressing's different. Um, so, you know, that that's where I learned my storytelling trade, really, off all those old movies. I love that stuff, the old Western movies. Still do. Still love Western. Yeah, me too, man. No, I, I'm, I'm a huge old Western fan. Also a big uh, war film, but also yeah. war comics fan. Yeah. And, it's, and, I, and really going back... Uh, I'm looking at my uh, – I, I was able to purchase a Tony DeZuniga Jonah Hex before he passed away, and it's uh, framed on, on my wall. But, but uh, yeah, a lot of those – He's actually – What's that? He's one of the kind of completely unknown influences on my work. I've adored his work since I was a kid. Interesting. Just love Very interesting. I know, but it's one of those – he's one of those guys that often gets overlooked, especially – uh, because he often had to do rush job ink jobs. When you look at his own work, especially his pencils and his own his own full art, it's just it's, it's stuff's wonderful. Yes, and the way you would the way he would use cross hatching. I loved all those um, you know the, the Filipino guys as well, like yes. Redondo and 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 Alfredo Alcala, who was yes. trying to do in black and white what uh, what Lion Decker was doing with paint, which is an interesting thing, but. You know, I love their work, and and that's all fed into how how I render stuff too. Because I'm, I think my st- my my inking style these days is probably even more European or more Filipino than it is American. You know, by uh, it's all cross hatching and textures, and and that's not generally speaking something that's been traditional in American comics, which because of their printing processes necessitated often having very simple line work. Understood and agree, and and also. As I've learned more about those those Filipino artists, uh, they learned how to draw, looking at actual comic panels, not realizing that the original art was so much bigger, the production art, yeah. and, and yet they learned how to draw that way in such detail in such small scale. Yeah, and it's it's incredible. And yeah, it's I have you know tremendous appreciation for the Filipino comic movement, and uh, you know it's they, those guys are like you said, Akala and. And uh, Nestor Redondo and, and Tony and everything, just amazing artists. Actually, the, funny that story about the sizing is is kind of the reverse of another artist I like because there's a French uh, artist called Paul Gillon. Uh, I think he's died now because he was in his 90s, but um, his 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 back catalogue's breathtakingly good. I mean, his his, his work. He did a, a huge series of science fiction graphic albums uh, in in France. Um, and uh, some of it was probably reprinted in the 60s and 70s in heavy metal, I think, actually, you know, okay. um, uh, you know, metal along. Uh, and actually, yes, some, uh, and actually some of it was reprinted, I know, in the in the Warren magazines like um, like Rook and um, oh, yeah. Creepy and Eerie. Creepy and Eerie. Yeah. Some of it was reprinted in, in, in that, if I remember rightly. Um, but it, but Paul Gillon, um, he's got these incredibly expressive brush strokes. His science fiction work is, is, is almost, you know, as wonderfully imaginative and detailed as anything you've seen in Star Wars. And it was a decade earlier. Um, but, um, <clears throat> I, I discovered that his pages are absolutely enormous. He draws huge, about like a, a page of his artwork is about the size of a door, um, <laughs> And apparently what happened was that when he was young and starting out in France, he was really a big fan of of, um, uh, of the Flash Gordon, the Alex Raymond Flash Gordon oh, Sunday wow. paper. Sure. 
<clears throat> and and he was curious about American comics because he didn't know how they drew or what how what size they drew them at. And he understood that in, this being in the, like the 1950s and 1960s, that he understood that uh, he was told that the Americans draw twice up from print. Um, so that's what he did. He, he he got. But the thing is, the Flash Gordon Sunday pages were being printed on what they call um, you know a broadsheet newspaper. Yes. So um, when he scaled that up by twice, it was pretty much the size of a bedroom door. <laughs> So that's how big he drew. Um, but he didn't realize that, you know, American comics, of course, are much smaller than that. And you know, twice up is, is you know, what is it, about um, 15 odd by something or other. But anyway, the, the, you know, I just I wanted to get hold of one of his. I've seen them, but I haven't actually bought one. But I would love to get hold of one of these things. But I don't even have the wall space to put it anywhere because it would be, you know, it's insanely vast. And the thing was, despite how big he, big he was drawing, he was incredibly quick, apparently. Um, and that's always amazing when you get people like like him and Joe Kubert who can just turn out, you know, exquisite work at, at a speed that defies understanding. Completely um, agree. I wanted to ask, given that you are working on Hawkman, had you ever met Kubert? I didn't meet him. I've, I've always said to Andy and Adam that you know that that's my yes. greatest regret is that I never said yes to going to the school when I was out there once. <sighs> yeah, I wished I had because it wasn't. It was only a couple of years after that that Joe passed away, and and. You know, they said that he he was very impressed by my work, uh, which just made my day for well many days. In fact, it's just sure. it's just I, I've I've loved his work since I was a kid. But I've only too, as an, as as I've learned more, I've 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 grown to appreciate his work more. You know, um, and I, I've pretty much got well, I've got a huge amount of it now, and, and and even some of the old, much older stuff. But you know, those artist editions I've got as well. Um, oh, that's great! The, yeah, the the tour one, especially, which is even bigger than the art, normal artist editions, because he because it was drawn for bigger print size. Uh, uh-huh. When when he did those that, that um, tour stuff, when was that? It was the nineties, I think. Um, there was a series, but it was done as, as sort of um, a much larger print format. So of course he drew the pages bigger. So um, because they're printing them at, pr- at the size he drew the pages, the artist edition is even bigger than the normal artist editions. Interesting, I didn't um, realize that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's immense. I'm, I'm, uh, it's it's lying on top of the shelves because I just can't put it anywhere. Sure. But it's, it's just, <laughs> I, I still pull it down regularly and look through it. And it's it's always inspiring. You know, every uh, single. Like, I just I adore the guy's work, and you know, absolutely. You, when you hear that he drew a page of Tarzan in 15 minutes, it's just it's just. It's shouldn't it's, it shouldn't be allowed. I hear you, man. No, he's he was incredible, and I missed my opportunity to have him on Word Balloon. And we, Jimmy Palmiotti, was kind enough to introduce us at a C two E two convention, and he, he was great. And I just loved that he uh, he in principle agreed to coming on, but then passed away a few months later. But then uh, I just loved that he was still working literally up until the end. And I loved right. that DC was doing that Joe Kubert anthology series. Yeah. And it was like, oh, that's so right. And and it's it just really it was like, man, this the guy still has it. And you know, all those great graphic novels he did in the last few years of his life are so powerful and so am- great stories and great storytelling. And you know, of course, Azarello, I had to ask him about doing that Sergeant Rock with him and what mm-hmm. that was like, you know. Oh no, he was just a genius and a guy that was there from the beginning, you know, 13 you know, years was, old yeah. doing doing blackout, you know, blacks for uh, for Will Eisner's studio when he's a kid. I'm working in comics pretty much for as long as comics have been around. <laughs> I know it's it's, a, it's amazing, you know, the, the 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 fact that he never ever lost it either. You know, he was still yes. as good at at the end as he had been for the last, you know, well, you know, I I mean I I fell for his stuff in the 70s, but you know, sure. I know that the Hawkman stuff was the 60s. 
but yep. you know it, it, it was every bit as good as he ever was that right down to the the last stuff he ever drew and you know adam were always telling me stories actually about how um uh, how fast he was, and I'm sure they must have told you some of them. Um, you but... know, I haven't had Adam and Andy I yet, and I keep hoping to. And I'll I okay. got to bug DC about making that happen. Or whatever. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a couple of quick ones that they they told <laughs> me because they just it just always inspires me, and I love to repeat these. Um, and I and I apologize to both of them for repeating these, and any mistakes I might make in the narrative, I'll put entirely down to um, just faulty memory on my part. But um, yeah, I, I, Adam, um, about the time I was doing Ultimates, was doing Ultimate X Men with Mark. And um, and there was a series, a sequence they were doing with um, with with Nick Fury in um, in uh, in a in a war setting. Um, so the idea was Adam Adam penciled those, and then Joe was going to ink them. Uh, I think it was about eight pages of the sequence in the end on that issue. Um, so Adam Adam said it took him two weeks to pencil them, and then he dropped them on his dad's desk. Um, and his dad said, "Yeah, he'd get to them later." Um, and and so they went off and they did their work for the day and and Joe um, Joe um, met up with them in the evening for a beer and and Adam said did did, did you you know um, how did you find them did you done anything on them he said yeah yeah I finished them this afternoon um, he said wait eight pages you've done you know, all of them he said yeah yeah it wasn't it wasn't any trouble um, and uh, and then Adam thought for me he said hang on a minute you were teaching classes he said yeah I did them in the break. <laughs> And then Andy told me to follow that one. Andy said, yeah, I think that was good. He said, so he's doing a, I think it might've been a, a Batman cover, but he was doing a cover anyway that Joe was going to ink. So Adam, Andy penciled the cover and, and, and he went to, to, to drop it on his dad's desk to leave it for him. His dad wasn't in the office. Uh, so he left it on his dad's drawing board with a note. And then he said, so then so at his desk, he was on like the, the second floor of the building. And they said, Andy said his studio was in the basement. So, so he said, um, you know, he stopped off to make some coffee, walked down the stairs to the basement to sit at his desk, realized he'd run out of paper. So he went back up the stairs to his dad's office to steal some paper from his dad's office. And the cover was sitting on the, and Joe still wasn't there, but the cover was sitting on his desk finished. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's almost the level of mythology now, isn't it? <laughs> you know, that's he wasn't even there. He never even saw his dad, but the cover just suddenly got miraculously inked. Jesus. Well, again, uh, confidence in his abilities doesn't let distraction get get in his way. And obviously, that was the and I'm sure teaching only reinforced his skill. And, and, you know, it's a great excuse to as he's, I'm sure, working on a book, using that and and showing his process to explain process to his students. I I have to imagine, again, eventually when I do talk to uh, Adam and Andy, I I hope to hear those kinds of stories because it would only make sense that he was probably using his own work as he was doing it, saying, okay, this is what I'm doing with my, uh, you know, uh, and I can't think of a a current uh, Yosef Yosef, or one of Mm -hmm. those stories, you know, that he made in those last years. So, ugh. No, yeah, genius man absolutely towering talent you know and great body of work it's it's, it's amazing and, and as i said it's always inspiring um, and you know that and again and and the fact that he had that confidence and i love the fact that he always said that he felt like he 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 retired on the second day of of, of the job because it was just fun all the time after i mean he's always he's, there's always I mean, you read in interviews that he's still pulling the midnight oil on this job or working all night on the other and all the stuff that goes with the territory sometimes when you're working to deadlines and there's just no way to fit it in unless you do it that way um, and it happens to all of us but um 
I love the fact that it, it, it still didn't spoil the joy for him. And the fact, you know, that I find that inspiring just as much as his drawing. I find, I find his attitude to his work completely ex- inspiring. Agreed. No, an amazing guy. Dude, you've been so kind with your time. I, 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 I feel like uh, we should wrap just to give you a break and, and also okay. rest, your, rest your voice. But truly, a great conversation. And please, when, you're, when they make the announcement for the new project, come back. Absolutely. Because uh, there's, there's more to talk about. You know, I mean, and you were kind to really focus on your American work, but I know you obviously had a few years, I'm assuming, it, at some of the other British publishers before you, you broke into the American market. So Actually, I want to hear about that. Well, there's not a lot to hear. Honestly, there's not that much to hear because the work was shit, honestly. <laughs> 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 I, 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 I felt like I had I, I've had a career that spanned 30 years, but it took me, as I said, with authority, 12 years to become an overnight success. <laughs> um, and, and the, um, and most of the work before that was me just not knowing what the hell I was doing uh, at all. So, I mean, I can, I'm happy to talk about it and there's, the, the, there are anecdotes there, but really it was, it, that was, that was the authority was about the first, well, at that and the Stormwatch, I suppose a little bit, but the authority was the first time it really kind of came together for me. And I actually knew what I, I seemed to know what I was doing anyway. It was still very experimental because, Oh, it was the first time I got to really be me, I think, as well. Um, and the first time I really stopped swiping from other people or trapped out to be other people. So, But the 12 years before that is just is just a mess of, of, um, of, of half-baked work and, and very bad, um, very, very bad stuff. I look at that stuff. I just I hate it, honestly. I, I, I think I've, I, I've burnt almost every copy that I can get my hands on to try and wipe it from existence. <laughs> But yeah, I'll happily talk. I'm happy to talk to you any time, John. So you know. Okay, that's great, man. Because yeah, and I and believe me, I know I feel that way about my early radio years as well. And I'm glad that I didn't hang on to uh, air checks. But then again, I do have great stories and great encounters as far as interviews and people that happen to wander. It was a sports talk station, as uh-huh. I said. But we'd have a lot of celebrities come in as well. So it was it was a good time. And yeah, exactly. I cringe thinking about you know listening to myself from that period. But by the same token. You know, yeah, there's there's always good stories. So, no, excellent, man. Hey, again, thank you. As a My long pleasure. admirer of your work, it, it's uh, it's it's such a thrill to have you on the show, and and really uh, a great, very flattering that you you're aware of what I do. Oh, I listen to this stuff all the time. So, um, I won't be listening to this one because I hate to hear my. <laughs> Besides which, I already know what I've said, so it won't be Exactly. We've already so, done it. That's yeah. okay. Yeah, you uh, don't have to re-listen. <laughs> but, you know, I do listen to the others, so, you know, I'm, I'm glad to be part of it. Oh, it's very kind, Brian. I, I truly appreciate that. And, and, yes, we will touch base. I'll let you rest for the rest of the year. But, yeah, come, uh, come 2019, you'll come back and uh, give us new stories. Absolutely. Love to. Great conversation with Brian Hitch. Really excited to share it with you on Word Balloon. And he had so much fun. He's like, can we do this again? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> He's got a lot more to talk about, man. Are you kidding me? So uh, we'll give him a few months break. But uh, I would expect early uh, 2019 we'll be talking to Brian Hitch, if not sooner. Uh, depending on how these announcements go that he's got coming from D.C. Very interesting stuff. Very excited to hear about them. Brian Hitch on today's Word Balloon. Hope you enjoyed it. It was brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. As always, League, thank you very much for your support. Please uh, continue to help me out if you can. Word Balloon is free. It'll always be free. I know I always say that, but I truly mean it because I I still want to gather a big audience. Like I said, if you can spare a dollar a month to subscribe to Word Balloon, that's terrific. 
I've been giving advance uh, notice on uh, some interviews that become episodes for the patrons at Patreon, and I intend to do some more as well. I'm getting schooled by the Patreon people of how best to uh, serve you in that capacity. And again, I can't thank you enough because you really are helping me get through these months with great content and uh, doing a lot more for you on Word Balloon. League of Word Balloon listeners via Patreon. So go to patreon.com slash Word Balloon or click on the Patreon ad at wordballoon.com. Word Balloon is also brought to you by Aftershock Comics, shaking things up now at your local comic store. Great series like Hot Lunch Special from Elliot Real and Jorge Fornes. Also books like Beyonders by Paul Jenkins and Wesley St. Clair. And an upcoming Word Balloon guest, the Lollipop Kids, will be talking to Adam Glass. Adam and Adrian are doing the writing. Diego Yapur is doing the art. And uh, Sal Cipriano is doing the lettering. Pretty neat story about kids discovering old world immigrant monsters that were brought over the boat and came through Ellis Island without us knowing it and are now dwelling in New York City. That's the Lollipop Kids. There are a ton of amazing writers and artists that you already know doing books at Aftershock Comics. Check it out. Look for full story descriptions, preview pages, and most importantly, the diamond codes on these books to order through your local shop at AftershockComics.com. Thanks again for listening. I hope to see you at New York Comic Con. I have no panels. I don't have a table. I'm going to be wandering just like you guys and women, going to panels, seeing my favorite uh, art people at their tables, uh, both writers and artists. I will be hanging out at Art and Franco's Aw Yeah table and their row of creators because they're my buddies and they always have a chair for me to sit down. And uh, I always appreciate that. But uh, I really can't wait, man. I'm very excited. I can't believe we're only two weeks away from New York Comic Con. And can't wait to see you shake your hand and thank you for your support by listening to Word Balloon. As I always say, if you really want to help out Word Balloon, a couple things you can do. First of all, support our sponsors, uh, but also tell people about Word Balloon. Tell people you, you like it. Um, Word Balloon is at Blog Talk Radio, and Blog Talk is about to join the Spreaker platform. And that's great because that's only going to expand uh, Word Balloon. Uh, it's going to be easier for me to post things to YouTube, uh, to SoundCloud. I've kind of toyed with SoundCloud in the past, but uh, you'll be getting more regular uh, SoundCloud posts of shows as well. But spread the word. Let people know that you're enjoying these conversations. And if they're into comics, they may as well. Thanks again. If you have questions or comments about the show, reach me via email, john at wordballoon.com. Follow me on Twitter, at John Word Balloon, or under my name, John Suntress, and the Word Balloon Network on Facebook. Instagram, I'm there under Word Balloon. And uh, what else can I say? More great conversation to come in the days ahead. We, we will not be slowing down here in September. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions, copyright 2018.